Sportsnet today. Brent Gunning, Show Ali alongside me here with you today until 4 o'clock. And, ooh, you know, normally the airing of grievances, that's a, that's a holiday tradition. That's a festivist thing. We <laughs> might get into that today uh, with the, some Leafs focus, frustrations, tons, tons, tons of guests on the program. Dave McCarthy going to join us in about a half hour's time to get into the Leafs not-so-hot start. Lee Ellis at 2 o'clock. Vivek Jacob going to join us at 2.30. Tons of basketball in the 2 o'clock hour. At 3 o'clock, going to take a look at the World Series. Then at 3.30, Rachel Dory going to help us dive back into the Leafs Whew. show I don't know what it is about and yeah I know you've got NFL on the brain but we got to dive into to the Leafs right oh, yeah. now I don't know what it is about these Pittsburgh games going in there it was the death knell for Mike Babcock you know Gord Stellick was telling me about another one many moons ago on our post game show last night and then of course last night you lay the egg 7-1 in Pittsburgh uh, I, I know some people out there fewer and fewer by the moment are clinging to the it's still early mantra where are you at on this Leafs team and their uh, kind of putrid start well yeah I viewed I can't believe first of all I I saw the stat you were talking when when Gord mentioned on Leafs Nation about the last time the Leafs were in Pittsburgh I guess I had forgotten because of the the North Division and you know not playing outside of Canada and so on right so I guess that that is the last time they'd played in in uh, in Pittsburgh that ho- horrific game when I guess what you know they had they get getting a blanked or getting a stopped at all at all costs it feels like by the Pittsburgh squad and here it is again, and yeah, people people clowning on on like Evan Rodriguez gaining the zone and scoring goals, and, and O'Connor getting a, a pair himself. I don't know. It was just that was an ugly game from top to bottom. I was listening to Leafs Nation with you guys last night, you and Gord, and um, I heard uh, Gord say the try effort was alarmingly low. Right, that was like a common refrain from the both of you guys, and that was like I think that was what shocked me more than anything else. Right, like you can talk about trap games and whether or not teams get up on time and so on we had we've had that conversation before and we probably will for any sport ever but boy it was like the, it looked so terrible when jason spezza tied the game relatively early on i thought to myself okay cool you know what this is this not a bad little bounce back i expected them to build on that and it was the complete opposite i'm not look i'm not pushing the panic button just quite yet right i do i do genuinely think there are a lot of fundamentally relatively speaking sound things about this team but at the same time when the top guys don't show up that does alarm me a little bit and I, you know i think it's i can still give a pass i don't know about you i can still give a pass to austin matthews because you know the wrist injury he had the surgery he's still only a couple games back even though the season started before that william nylander ha- has generally looked like he is picking up where he left off in the playoffs uh, against Montreal last year, despite last night's result. But the I don't know, like the, when you, when it comes when the milk cartons are put in front of people's doorsteps tomorrow on Monday, <laughs> I think uh, Mitch Marner's face might be on there, Gunner. I I am done. Uh, this is a devoted marriage. There's no hall passes. There is there is nothing. I'm giving away any. Okay, it's only been a couple games. I gave Austin Matthews the Sharks game, and I would have given him a ho-hum, you know, 3-1 loss to the Penguins on a Saturday night. After the way that game unfolded and the just completely dreadful effort, and this isn't coming from me, Jake Muzzin, using very similar words after the game, I am done saying it's early. I am done saying, well, they have to find it. You you talked about a trap game, and sometimes teams go into that, and there was no Malkin, and there's no Crosby, and no Latang, and somehow Jeff Carter kept getting thrown into that, even though he's about 40 years old now. The, the Tom Brady, although much less successful of, of the NHL, they 
the Penguins are missing every single player. So I suppose you could have gone into that looking at it like it's a trap game. The Leafs have gone into this season like it's a trap season. I was one of the people sitting here banging the table saying, you don't need to worry about where this team is at in the Atlantic. Are they going to win the division? No, probably not. But they're going to be safely one of those top three teams. I still think talent-wise, they are one of the top three teams, but they need to wake up and start playing like it because they have sleptwalked through the start of this season and there have been good moments. That game against the Rangers, they played tremendous, but they have sleptwalked through this season like the entirety of it has been a trap game, and that is the most frustrating thing. The The things that you were concerned about heading into this season, goaltending, okay, when Michael Hutchins is in there, it doesn't get a pass, and Campbell was not great last night, but I think Jack Campbell is showing you, yes, you can you can have him be your number one. Mrazic going down, that's frustrating. Well, the other question, can they get any depth scoring? All they've got is depth scoring. The guys scoring all the goals are the depth. It's Spezza, it's Kerfoot, it's Kasha, even Camp uh, tripping in here and there. So that is the thing that on one hand is so frustrating that it is your stars not getting it done. That is them sleepwalking through the start of the season. But on the other hand, if I tell you the only thing going wrong with the Leafs right now is that Matthews and Marner and Tavares and Nylander and Morgan Riley aren't playing like themselves, well... I kind of believe that's going to turn itself around as frustrating as it is right now. Last night's game, I have I have like no other word to use for last night's game other than that it was cursed in every possible respect. Like it was I it was it was terrible. Every player virtually looked terrible. Like you know, if you want to like if if you wanted to give letter grades to to different different guys on this team, there's there's nobody that would get in my opinion more than what like if, if I'm being generous, I think there's no one who gets better than a C plus. Is that fair? Pierre Engvall was a plus one. He was the only guy on the team, so you could start with him. B? And he gets could be the ceiling of it. No, the C plus is the C+. ceiling for okay. last night. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's kind of where I. That's kind of where I'm at. Right. I mean, like like you said, a plus one in a seven one game, which he must mean he just didn't play that much outside of being on the ice for the uh, for the Spezza goal, right? But yeah, it's just maybe Wayne Simmons, if you want to go there for trying somehow to jumpstart something with the the havoc going on with Brian Boyle in the third period, I guess, but. Like, I'll be completely honest with you. I was here at work last night, and uh, there were a lot of things going on last night, right? There was a, the uh, NLCS I saw, game. I saw you tweeting about the, the NLCS. Yeah, I, yeah. I saw your NLCS tweets. <laughs> I, I, I watched Eddie Rosario clock a home run to end that game. I watched the Raptors game. I uh, You know, Scotty Barnes getting another close to, do- to a double-double, even though the uh, OG not scoring in the second half. Like, I watched a lot of things last night. Once the Leafs game got to 5-1, I was sitting with our, our friend uh, Vic Palladian, who is a technical director for the for the morning show, and uh, I, I both and I, he and I looked at each other. The game got went to five one. We looked at each other and we're like, "Time to watch some baseball. It's time to change. Time to change this channel." And like he he is probably one of the biggest Leafs boosters I've ever met in my entire life. Maybe even more. Maybe possibly more than you and Sam McKee. I, I dare I say right. So at least on the same level, maybe. But boy, it is it it was a that was a tough watch, and it's just. Matthews, maybe of the top line, is the guy I would give the 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 highest rated report card to because he hit the post. But I mean, I think he had a goal called called back later on. I want to say, but mm-hmm. uh, boy, it's just like I like where I, I'm. I'm so curious. Where where are you at specifically on Mitch Marner? Because Mitch Marner, he's he's one of those. He's a star. He's highly paid. He's paid to play like a star every night and. 
I think when not only when he plays poorly, but when he has the response after the game that I think clearly irked a lot of people. Oh. And he had a similar response in the playoffs last year where he was like, oh, I wouldn't do anything differently. And last night, the first thing in his most post-game media availability, literally the first thing he said out of his mouth was, I don't think we can be concerned. And I and I get, I get it. Like, I get why he might think that because maybe, again, maybe he feels the fundamentals are there. But at the same time, I mean, boy, how, how can you lose 7-1 and not even sound concerned. I know that may not make a difference for like what the product on the ice, but still it just like it I he, how can how he can not see that that rubs virtually everyone the wrong way. All right, just give me give me one second before I answer that okay. question. Everybody out there together, let's all take a deep breath in through the nose. <laughs> out through the mouth. <sighs> okay, we're all going to get through this answer together. Mitch Marner is a tremendously talented hockey player. He has proved it time and time again in this market. Unfortunately, except when it matters. Except when it matters, he has not proven it. Now, we can go back to some of the first playoff failures for this group. And there was a moment where I believe the Leafs take a 2-1 lead in a series against the Bruins after a win at home that is sealed by Mitch Marner blocking shots at the top of the circle. And it feels like this player is about to go on a Doug Gilmore-like run of belovedness that can never be shaken. Fast forward four years and four puck-over-the-glass penalties, and mind you, no goals later. And this is what happens. Now, I think that sometimes people talk about a player and they can't handle playing in a big market. I am not there with this player yet by any means. I am not writing off Mitch Marner as someone who can have success in this market. I used to joke that nobody loved being a Leaf more than Connor Brown. And I still kind of believe that. I don't know that being a Leaf weighs on anyone more than it does Mitch Marner. You see it on his face in the penalty box last year. There's the shot where he's in borderline tears because after the puck over the glass penalty, you can see the anguish on his face. And I think people, I mean, maybe they don't like the tears, but I think they love that you're that invested, that you care that much. You see him on the bench. He's broken up last night, and you like that. And then the player comes to the podium, and I understand the sports psychology aspect of don't dent your own armor. Don't cut yourself. You want to stay strong. You don't want to shake your belief. Other people are trying to do that in you. You don't want to do it. But this group, and he has kind of been the tip of the spear in this regard, has such a problem showing contrition. Jake Muzzin didn't. He called out the group last night for the lack of effort. But time and time again, we see this take the long road. Take patience. Don't get down on herself. You go to the all or nothing. Mitch Marner's having a heart-to-heart with Kyle Dubas before Game 7 about how he wants to give more. Of course he wants to give more. I I genuinely believe that no player feels the pressure of being a Leaf like that guy does. And if it works out well and if they get to the promised land, no one will enjoy it more than him. But right now, he's just wearing it so much. Uh, You you can see it on his face. And then I, I honestly think that I don't know that he believes we can't be concerned, but I know that that's what he thinks he has to say. I could not believe that quote when I read it last night. Thank goodness. Well, I mean, maybe the listeners wish I would have got that reaction live on air. Thank goodness I didn't see that until we were done recording the postgame pod. So I don't know what I would have done. A lot of cussing? Well, I mean, at least internally, definitely at least internally, (laughs) I think you need to split those two up right now. You need to have a different look. Matthews, get him with Nylander, get Tavares with Marner. It's just 
whatever is happening right now isn't working. And I think that most players, we think it bothers them more than it does. I think an Austin Matthews has the ability to let stuff kind of roll off his back. But I think with a player like Marner, it does wear on him and it does matter. And that's why I think for all these guys, the slump is a problem. But I think for him, he really, really needs to get off the schneid quicker than most because I, I just, I see it on his face when he's on the bench that it's wearing on him. And I think that's a good thing. You just need to find a way to turn it into something constructive. Do you like, do you think a part of the reason, cause I agree with you. I do. I do think it weighs on him. Do you think part of it is because he is a Toronto boy home, you know, born and raised, lived in the city, always wanted to be a leaf, got the contract from the Leafs, has, has, been, has played, you know, they, they drafted him super highly. They believed in him, all those things. And now the, the, the fans, uh, you know, the group of fans that cheer for the Leafs, of which he was one and probably still is one, are like calling for his head, right? Because like you said, Austin Matthews, I think maybe maybe he does have a little bit of a different mentality, but he's also, and again, I never know how much this plays into fact players, you know, their own, their own uh, you know, their own lo- looking at themselves, let's say, right? Because Austin Matthews is American and he's a, a different kind of player as well. Maybe he, he doesn't have a connection, like emotional connection to this to this market in the same way that someone who was born and raised here does. Like, do you think at any, in any sense of the word that does play a factor into how much it could weigh on someone like Marner? So this is, this is definitely going to be a little bit of recency bias, and I'm sure there will be people clamoring to correct me. And if you want to, 590-590 is the text line. Please include your name and location. I think this is the most high-profile local product that's been here in a really long time, and I'm sure a lot of people are sitting there saying, well, John Tavares is right here. But the difference between Tavares and Marner is that although he gets $11 bucks a year and the production doesn't always quite you know, work out to that for Tavares, he left $3 bucks on the table. Yeah. There was an offer for 14 a year, albeit, I don't know, same year, seven-year, $14 million a season in San Jose that he turned down. So there is always the belief that John Tavares took less because he did, still took a lot, but because he took less to stay here, the criticism, I think, that would get bandied on him if he had took 14 a year here from the Leafs gets walked back and walked back a little more. Whereas a player like Marner, yes, it's that he's here. There have been other guys who are from the area, but they've been your your energy type guys. Zach Hyman is a perfect kind of example of that. Zach Hyman, the minute you started expecting things of him, he kept getting better, but there was always a ceiling on what you expected of him because he was this player who built himself out of nothing. Marner's not that guy. Marner is the golden child. How many times have we all seen the clip of the cute little blonde hair kid saying, I want to play for the Toronto Maple Leafs on City TV when he's four. When he was four, show. Think about how long that this has felt like his destiny. You go to London. You win the Memorial Cup. You're playing on a great line there. You get drafted to this team. You come up. You're immediately playing well. Before Austin Matthews is here, let's not forget that. That was when this was the Tyler Bozak era. And then you have a player like this who, so it's the combination of local product plus the contract plus the way he got the contract that that is causing it. I just don't think that there's ever been a player who's had those three things joined together for them here. There have been beloved local products. There have been local products who are, who are paid well, but never the way that it's happened with this guy. And that's why I think it's such an issue because, again, I think he tries to avoid it, but there's just no way he doesn't know 
the the talk about his contract in yeah. this area. Yeah, it just it just feels like whenever he makes a statement like that, and I just again I go back to the way the playoffs ended last year and his like the media availability he did basically like what like less than an hour after Game Seven against the Habs last year. And again, it was it was a very similar response. I don't remember exactly what he said. Where whereas last night again he said, um, I don't think we could be concerned. It was something along the lines of. Uh, you know, the, the the season ended the way it did. I wouldn't change a thing, that kind of stuff, right? And and again, I just I really do feel like maybe maybe he maybe he feels that's the hockey player answer because we all we all also know that every single one of these guys is trained to be a robot whenever they talk to the media, and that anytime any of them, Leafs or otherwise, across the sport is not a robot when they talk to the media. Everyone's like, oh my gosh, and they like eat it up, right? And but when it comes to Mitch Marner, he he I think like you say, he intentionally avoids doing that because maybe maybe that'll also create a stir and i know we all we all know what the 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 being in the media market here in this city does to players and what it can do let's say and i think a lot of these guys have by and large successfully avoided any major pitfalls but here here is the biggest one so far in this young the 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 tenure so far of this young team and it just i can't help but think that should the kind of play we saw last night i'm not going to get blown out 7-1 every single game although i'm i'm i've never been more confident in saying that on monday night frederick anderson is absolutely going to shut out this team and uh t- twitter will absolutely implode on itself and i can't wait to listen to Leafs nation i'm uh, just going to tell you that right now but uh but for, when Fre- when freddie anderson does that it's going to be a lot of fun uh, in in a, the absolute worst sense of that word but I, I i don't know man it's just if things continue to snowball like this the calls for people's heads, whether it is players, whether it's Dubas, whether it's Keefe. And frankly, I, I don't entirely, I know every coach has to wear their fair share of the blame that rhymed more than I intended it to, but uh, coaches wear their, wear that a little bit, but I don't know. You lose seven to one. There's only so much a coach can do beyond being like, what the hell are you all doing out there? Play better. I, I don't know what, what anyone would look for, for Sheldon Keefe to do differently. He has, I, I think the only thing he hasn't done is really called out the depth of this team. There was an exchange after the Friday night game, uh, the loss to San Jose, and Nick Ritchie, he had got bumped off the top line, and I think it was Terry Koshan of the, I forget who he's with, but he was he was doing the back and forth with Keefe about Nick Ritchie and his place on the line, and Keefe redirected the question saying, all those questions should be asked about Marner and Matthews as well. They're just as much a part of that line right. he is going at his star players I mean Tavares he hasn't been as pointed with but I also don't know that Tavares needs someone to kind of hold him accountable the worm is completely turned on Nylander and in, in terms of what the the kind of bulk of the the fan base feels about him Keith has tried the only thing he hasn't tried and he did try it at the tail end of the last game was flipping the wingers with with Matthews and Tavares going with with Marner with Tavares and Nylander with Matthews you you could try that, but I, I honestly don't know what else there is for him to try. He has tried to take the time out to scream at his team. He did that in San Jose yep. or when they played San Jose at home. He tried the time out last night to say, hey, guys, you've got some bad goaltending here. Don't worry. Not on you. You can dig yourselves out of this. That didn't work. It seems like he is playing every single note on the banjo, and the team is is kind of plugging their ears, and, and this is where it gets uncomfortable. I don't think you can say in six games that a team has two to coach out by any means and I don't think that's what's happening but when a coach is trying every single tool at his disposal including benching Mitch Marner for a share of that third period when you're trying every single thing and you're not getting results 
at this tenure in the season, there's not a Mitch Marner trade to be made. There's not a Morgan Riley trade to be made that makes you any better. So I don't know what the move could be other than that. And I don't think Sheldon Keefe deserves to be on the hot seat one iota. Well, you know, when it comes to Sheldon Keefe too, right? Because I, I agree with what you said. I don't, I don't think it's, it, it, you know, again, coaches can only do so much beyond, you know, walking out on the ice and grabbing a guy's stick and say, do this better, right? And they're not certainly not going to do that. But when it comes to Sheldon Keefe, look, I just wonder, like, if he were to if he were to go to these guys, if he were to go to Tavares or Marner or Matthews or really anyone on this roster and say, what do you need? What would make this team better? What, what do you require for this team to not be the way it is right now. I like I I'd be hard pressed to know what their answer would be, right? Like 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 you said, like <laughs> well, <laughs> you know you know what Matthew's answer would be. It'd be that guy who's making 5 plus a year in Edmonton that right. you just like going free agent. Like honestly, that's the that is sure. that's the only thing that's missing. That's it. That's it. They have the D that's set that they've wanted. Goaltending tandem they're comfortable in. Mrazic got hurt. Okay, that that's definitely changed the picture a little bit. That's the only thing there is that guy missing because all the other depth pieces have kind of done what you've asked them to do. Cash has been the guy. Bunting's been what he's been asked to do. Richie hasn't worked out in that top left wing spot. And boy, do we all think it'd be a little different if Zach Hyman was there? Yeah, I think we do. Yeah, you're probably right. And because what they what they clearly hope is that either Richie or Bunting will become the new Zach Hyman. Right, and you see it on and not necessarily last night because it was hard to really see anything positive last night. But when you look back to the Sharks game, even I mean, I, I was I was chatting with um, a couple of a couple of Leafs beat writers here on on Sportsnet today a couple of days ago, and I mentioned that you know when it comes to Michael Bunting, there might be no player on this roster who is asked to go and dig pucks out of the corner and take as many shots. I know they're cutting down on cross checking and all that stuff in front of the net, but still, like there must be no player on this roster more than Michael Bunting who ends a game. With, with more bruises on his body. And, and it, it kind of does feel like when I, when I look at Michael Bunting, I kind of feel sometimes like we're getting the very early days of Zach Hyman. Because Zach Hyman's evolution as a player when he was in Toronto spanned many years, and he really did up his game in a lot of different ways. I mean, I remember those times when, you know, he'd get like a, a great pass from someone, he'd take the puck on his stick or get it in his skates and then like just walk into the goal and then completely you know, fumble it and flip it, flip the puck over the net or shoot it right into the goaltender's chest or what have you. And he was vastly improved on that, basically just in time to walk to free agency and become an Edmonton Oiler now. And it, it does kind of feel like Michael Bunting is that is is there hope that the, he becomes that? But I mean, like you said, like there, obviously they would rather have the Hyman of today because the Hyman of like, I don't know, four or five years ago, isn't going to really be helping the Matthews and Marner and Tavares got to win now while they're under contract conversation anyways. Yeah. I, I think the problem has been just what Richie's given you, which has been next to nothing. And yeah, you mentioned Hyman early on in his tenure. I, the amount of, and you know, we always love to pat our, pat ourselves on the back. When we were right about something in this business. And I, uh, I was right about Hyman from the <laughs> jump. I said he was going to be not this, I'll admit, I never quite saw this, but I always thought he would be a useful contributor to the top six. And the amount of texts I exchanged with people saying, oh, I'm tired of watching this guy. And uh, let me tell you, uh, let, let's see if you can guess which fan five, nine, personality this is oh i'm tired of watching this guy beat the puck into a square and just chop into the goalie's chest the, the choppers no thanks i don't need to see it and lo and behold uh zach hyman managed to figure itself out now i think the thing that you like a little michael bunting is a is a worse player than zach hyman that's not to say michael bunting isn't good or that's not to say michael bunting doesn't give you a lot of things you need but the one thing he gives you that zach hyman 
would find in his game occasionally when the game got that way, but was not in the core of his DNA. Michael Bunting's a jerk. He is just a pain to play against. You do not want any part of that guy. And that has been the thing that this team has kind of been missing. And, man, I know it goes without saying, but if you had two Michael Buntings, if you could just put one on the top line and one with Tavares and Nylander, it's amazing how much differently this would feel. Because I think, and I don't want to take any of the the focus away from Matthews and Marner. That top line isn't struggling right now because Nick Ritchie isn't fitting. It's a small piece of the puzzle, but it's not clicking because 16 isn't putting it on the tape for 34, and then he's not throwing it bar down. That's the reason why that line isn't successful right now. So, yes, you'd love to have Hyman there. Yes, you wish Ritchie was a better fit. Although, again, love to pat ourselves on the back. I've kind of said I didn't see this working out. You need to find who that body is, and I think it's going to be... a rotating cast of characters. Maybe it's Pierre Engvall for a night if he's feeling good. Kerfoot's been looking good on that check-in line. Maybe he gets a sniff, and they just need to find it's not going to be a guy who's going to sit there all year long on the left side with Matthews and Martin. That's not going to be the way it's going to work. They're going to have to ride the hot hand, and I think that that's one thing Sheldon Keefe has proved he's been able to do a pretty good job of early on in this tenure is kind of find the right mixes when he gets the blender going. Yeah, it's true. Sheldon Keefe is not afraid to put the lines in a blender. No, no NHL coaches, of course, but we've seen it a lot during the the last couple of seasons. And uh, you know, you look at Nick Ritchie, like you said. You, you, I, I remember before the season started, you did say something like that to me <laughs> right here in the studio. Uh, so definitely, I will, I will pat you on the back as well for that. But uh, Nick Ritchie, I mean, it's. It's been ugly, man. Like he, he, and again, I, I know this is maybe hyperbole, but he barely looks like an NHL player at this point. And, and I, and that is shocking considering, you know, the kind of things we had gotten used to seeing from Nick Ritchie over just like the past couple of years, not even like years and years and years ago, but relatively recent NHL memory. He has looked okay. And he has looked uh, absolutely downright abysmal. So I, I don't know what the fix is for Nick Ritchie specifically as a player beyond like scratching him at this point and hoping he gets it together in practice. And you, you know, you hope he, he, you see a couple more improvements there because like you said, there's the, that top line is struggling for more reasons than Richie Matthews and Marner have to get their stuff together too. But man, like I, I, at this point, if we don't, if we see Nick Richie continually to take up time and minutes on the top line with those two, I would, I think I almost feel like I'd be upset at this point because of how, how it's gone so far this year. I, I echo all of that. I've seen a lot of that. Although I, I kind of get the feeling, and we'll see. We'll, we'll see what the lines look like. Potentially, they have a skate today. We'll definitely see what they look like tomorrow in Carolina. This almost feels, dare I say, a little Babcockian from Keefe of, you know what? You guys figure it out. I'm not giving you the hot hand. I'm not giving you Alex Kerfoot, who looks like he's playing okay. I'm not giving you Pierre Engvall. You figure it out with this guy because you should be able to figure it out if I am out yeah. there. And I mean I, Brent Gutting, and I mean I, Sheldon Keefe. It really <laughs> shouldn't matter who's out there. And Richie, the the last point I'll, I'll make on him before we uh, give away Dave McCarthy, going to join us in just a, just a moment here on Sportsnet today, Brent Gutting, Show Ali. If the Boston Bruins didn't want a big plodding winger that had some toughness to him. I don't know who else would. The fact that Boston didn't want a player with that exact description should have probably been a bit more of a red flag. Brent Gunning, Show Ali here with you for Sportsnet today. Want to hear from you guys on the text line, 590-590. Please include your name and location. How do you fix the Leafs' slow start? Do you need to fix it, or is this one of those it's-just-early things? I'm not saying that. I want to be clear about that. We'll see what Dave McCarthy says. He joins us next here on Sportsnet today on Sportsnet 590, the fan, the Sportsnet radio network. 
Sportsnet 590. 590. The Fan. Sportsnet today, Brent Gunning, Show Ali alongside me. Thrilled to be here with you today. We've got a plenty, plenty more hours left in the program. Joining us now, first guest batting leadoff today, Hopefully starting on time, unlike the Maple Leafs, pretty much every game this season. Dave McCarthy, Toronto correspondent, NHL.com. Of course, also the host of Sunday Brunch on Sirius XM NHL Radio. Joining us after a little brunch, I'd imagine. Dave, how are you doing this morning? Good, boys. What's up? Oh, you know, doing well, watching the sky fall in Leafland. You know, as as one does in, in late October, uh, normally I like to save these conversations for, oh, I don't know, end of January, early February. Uh, it, it's getting dark early after a loss in, in Pittsburgh. You know, on one hand, I'm sitting here saying it's six games into the season. We are two games removed from a tremendous night against the Rangers. On the other hand, that, that was about as dreadful as, as this team's looked in quite some time. Dave, what's your kind of, you know, 500-foot view of, of this team six games into the season? Well, I know it is early, but... I'm seeing some things that are leading me to have some legitimate concern, quite honestly, because we're seeing a lot of the same things that we heard about last year um, and trying to learn lessons and making sure that, uh, you know, they dial in in training camp and make sure that they don't have um, a collapse like they did against the Montreal Canadiens in the first round. Um, you know, uh, talking a lot about the same things, but we're not seeing much um, improvement on the ice. And I just think the the end of this week was was really alarming to me, given the fact that they they didn't play um, since Monday. They were able to practice twice, had a day off, played the San Jose team on on Friday. That yeah, they've gotten off to a good start, but they're no world beaters by any stretch. Um, and they had played twice since the Leafs played on, on Monday, and uh, including the Thursday night against Ottawa. And, and I thought those first 10 minutes of that game um, were really there for the Leafs to, to come out, dictate the tempo uh, that they want to play, and essentially remove the souls of the Sharks early on in that game. But they didn't do it. They waited into the game, and well, let's sort of see how this goes. And I, I thought they kind of played down to the the Sharks' energy level, which admittedly was low toward the end of that road trip and having played a, a number of games, rather than making the Sharks play up to theirs. Um, and I did not think the top line was any good on Friday night, and, and Sheldon Keefe alluded to as much after the game when he said as much as many questions need to be asked to Matthews and Martyr tonight as they do about Nick Ritchie. And then they had an opportunity against a, a team that was essentially, by and large, the AHL affiliate of the Penguins on Saturday the next night to, to put forward some sort of a response. And they played with no purpose whatsoever, and they got embarrassed and run out of the building. So we're, you know, we, we hear all the time after every game, oh, we're, we're learning the lessons. Well, I guess they're not paying attention in class because, I mean, how – how, how long does this need to go before we start to see some element of change on the ice? You know, Dave, one of the things that Gunnar and I, we talked about in the first segment of the show was Sheldon Keefe and how much blame Sheldon Keefe can be uh, can be assigned at this point. I, I feel like I landed on very little, if any. I wonder where you yeah. land on that. 
I'm right, right there with you. See, I thought the Amazon uh, series that came out there at the beginning of October was really revealing um, in terms of how Sheldon Keefe uh, conducts himself and coaches the team. And I think he was kind of bestowed this narrative that, ah, he's Sheldon the good guy, everybody's body, this and that, when he came in, uh, taking over from Mike Babcock. And that's clearly, that, that narrative runs counter to reality, right? Like he says um, all the things that need to be said. He's challenging guys. He's, um, you know, he's pointing out, he's having the hard conversations with, with guys. He's pointing out what needs to be pointed out. Um, there, there's energy, there's passion there. Um, and he's not afraid to, to put people on the spot when they need to be put on the spot. So he's not everybody's buddy. He's, he's, he's saying what needs to be said to coach this team. And quite frankly, to me right now, um, e- even hearing him after games, uh, saying what he did the other night about uh, the power play, that it's, you know, I'm still, still seeing a lot of more of the same problems that we saw all year last year, uh, fighting it, not executing um, he, to me, is kind of turning in, like, it, it, put it this way, if, if I just handed you a transcript and you didn't <laughs> see the video, ca- the video camera or you didn't hear the audio, you, like, you, you know who it would remind you of, right? A lot of what Sheldon's having to say is what Mr. Babcock used to say that people got sick and tired of listening to and hearing about, but I'll be honest, I was consistent in that thing. It was the right thing then. That need to be said. It's still the right thing now. It's just that it doesn't seem like the players are, again, interested in listening to the hard conversations. So I don't put this on Sheldon at all. Um, it's on the players because they can control the level of work. And, and quite frankly, they're, they're willing to let themselves get outworked in a lot of hockey games. And it's, it's very it's disconcerting to see. The, the the lack of work ethic is is so upsetting, and you're, you're right. If you would have handed me that transcript, I would have thought it sounded a lot like, oh, don't point figures are rich. You got to look at Austin and Maddie. That's exactly it. That's exactly what it would have sounded like. You're right. I have been sitting here thinking, and of course, it has to happen on the heels of a, a drumming loss in Pittsburgh, of course, going back to the Casimir-Kaskasuo game that was Babcock's second to last. You know, if you're going to point the finger at the players, and I'm right there with you, that is who is is to blame for this right now. I think I think a lot of the fingers in this market are pointing at, at Mitch Marner. You know, do you think he is getting a fair share of the blame? Do you think he still has the bullseye painted on his back? I mean, he's not doing much to remove that bullseye, especially saying last night that, you know, there that he's not concerned about the way that started. You have to have belief. What, what do you what do you make of Marner's start to the season and how how does he dig himself out of this? <sighs> not good. Like let's just be honest, right? <laughs> yep. Like not not nearly good enough for the money that he's making. And you hate to lord someone's salary over them, but in a hard cap world where you're commanding that percentage of the salary cap um, and you are, what is it, the sixth highest paid player in the game this year? You don't have the luxury of, of being dramatically under the level that you need to perform at for like, five or six game spurts and and Mitch Marner at the beginning of the year has been has been no good like he hasn't commanded the play the way he can he just does not score a lot of goals right I mean that's even at his best he's not a guy that's scoring a lot of goals and for for somebody making that that type of money 
I mean, again, that's not his fault. That that goes back to management. And another thing that I've been consistent on since that contract was signed, since the Nylander, since the math, like those deals were mishandled, and now it's coming back to roost. Um, so, look, I this this narrative of all oh, the media is too like I'm, I'm sorry. This this is you know this is big boy hockey right now. Um, you're you're being paid a great deal of money. Um, you didn't play very well in the playoffs last year, and it's carried over into the regular season. And the team is playing sort of to me without a purpose. Well, that that falls on the guys who are making the most money. It's just the fact of the matter in a in a hard cap world. So we can sit here and say, oh, Nick Ritchie hasn't been very good, and he has not been very good. Uh, or, you know, or you need more out of David Kampf or Andre. Well, what you know, at the end of the day, if Matthews and Marner and Tavares and Nylander are not going to drive the ship, and if Jason Spezza is your best player. It's not going to work, and those guys that, that eat up a lot of the money are going to get, I think, their, their fair share of criticism. So, um, yeah, I do think it's fair because if, if Marner and Matthews are not dramatically better than they've been this week, it's going to be a long year in Toronto. Talking to Dave McCarthy here, Toronto correspondent for for NHL.com, and I, I think that's a great point you make about the media. You know, I don't think the media is overtly critical of Marner. I actually think, given the way the fan base has acted towards that player, and I don't know unrightly so, the the overwhelming media sentiment that I've been seeing, and I, I guess I'm a part of this as well now, is that it seems to be pump the brakes just a little. There is a lot to criticize there, but it, it feels like the fan base is much more harsh on that player right now than. <laughs> than the media is and I wonder how much of how much of that like you know we it, it is all a guessing game when we sit here and wonder how much that stuff bothers a player but I yeah. I mean I see it wearing on him on the bench last night and maybe that's reading too much into one moment but it feels like it it weighs on that guy much more than it does another local product albeit longer in the tooth like John Tavares or of course Jason Spezza. Yeah, I mean, sure, he's, I'm sure he's feeling a burden of responsibility right now, but, you know, that's the bed you make yourself, again, in a hard cap world where you command that kind of money. You you can't com- – like, it's not like, you know, before 2004 where, okay, you pay a guy a lot of money, he's not – so you've got all the money in the world as a leaps through. You go out and you, you, you find somebody else. You pay him more money. It doesn't matter as long as you get production from somewhere. It doesn't work that way. So you eat up all that money. You have to perform or your team is not going to be very good. And I don't think the media boys has been that hard. Like last Tuesday at practice, there were a couple of questions to Marner about, oh, you know, what do you got to do to uh, to be a little bit more productive? And he was like, well, oh, change nothing. Just stay the course, get in chance. It's going to go in. Anything you need to change? Nope. No, and he was a little terse, I'll be honest, um, which I don't think, quite frankly, helps him all that much. When you get combative with the media, um, you will always lose. You will never win that fight because the media will be here long after you're gone and, and the next guy's gone and the guy after that. So you, if, you're, if you play ball a little bit, people will be a little bit easy. But honestly, if that was the, the toughest of the questions, I mean, come on, that's not hard at all. The fact is you weren't taking a shot at the guy. He hasn't performed well. So what needs to change? Okay, so you answer and, and you move on. The, the 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 guy who's really been taking the brunt of it from the media has been Nick Ritchie, and as Sheldon Keith quite quite accurately pointed out on Friday night, 
And he said, look, I, <laughs> I'm not stupid here. The, the line of questioning I've been getting over the last week has been let's all dogpile on, on Nick Ritchie because, well, that must be the reason, right? It can't be the two guys that are making uh, $22 million combined um, that, that aren't performing. It's got to be the guy that's making two on their line who's not playing good enough, and he's the reason why the other two are. Can't, you know what I mean? So um, as, as, as Sheldon pointed out, look, you know, as many questions need to be asked of, of Matthews and Martyr than need to be asked of Nick Ritchie right now. So he deflected the blame back on the guys that, you know, in and of, it should, should be able to put you or I on. I mean, I a little bit hyperbolic here, but, you know. At, at that I said it. Money, I said it last segment. I'm right there with you, Dave. You know, at that type of money, uh, it's on Matthews and Marner to find a way to, to produce better themselves than, than hearing about where, and it's not Marner and Matthews complaining about Nick Ritchie, far from it, but the the fan base and the media, if you're looking at Nick Ritchie as the problem right there, no, as Sheldon pointed out, uh, everybody on that line, including the big boys, need to be better. And, you know, what, what I found very concerning, like I said earlier on our talk on Saturday, had an opportunity to take the challenge fairly put on you by the head coach and respond against, a, like, undermanned is putting it nicely about the Penguins yesterday, and there was nothing there in that that's that's not nearly going to be good enough. You know, Dave, we've been talking a little bit about Austin Matthews, and I'm just curious, you know, he's coming back from the wrist surgery. Are we are we still kind of reserving judgment, or has it, in your opinion, been enough time for us to be like, all right, he needs to get this stuff going now? Well, we weren't reserving judgment. I used the collective we there after the Rangers game when I heard all the analyticians telling me, oh, he had like 16 shot attempts. He was unbelievable. Oh, my God, he was unbelievable. Okay, well, he didn't shoot it in the net, and that's fine. He, he did play fairly well on Monday. But my point is, well, we didn't reserve judgment then when everybody thought he was great. So when he doesn't play well at all the next two games, and he turned the puck over a couple times on Friday against San Jose, and he, he took the blame after the game. He put it on himself. He said, look, I need to be better in my own and protect the puck. And he's right. That's, that's true. Um, you know, and then he wasn't very good. Neither was Marner again on uh, on Saturday against the Penguins. Well, I think it's fair to, to point that out that um, that they haven't been good enough, and that if you're in the lineup now, you're you should be viewed as being a hundred percent. Sure, the timing is off, and he hasn't had training camp like you know a lot of the other guys had. But well, okay, he seemed to be pretty good on on Monday, and everybody was quick to point that out. So I think it's fair to point it out when he wasn't very good the next two games. And um, at the end of the day, he, he's got to improve because if he doesn't, if he doesn't shoot it in the net and Marner isn't contributing on the score sheets, like we talk again, like it's, it's just not going to work. Those are the guys that need to carry the mail. So um, I don't think it's necessarily a case of res- reserve judgment because the way the team is built boys, it's not like you can look to a lot of guys lower in the lineup to produce. I mean, it's Jason Spezza at 10 minutes a night has been doing, you can't ask for more than him. He's producing, but who, who else is, is going to score you goals? Like Pomp, Kasha, Kerfoot, there's not a lot of goals that are going to come from that line. Uh, Tavares and Nylander have, have not done a, a great deal at even strength the last little while here. So if they're not going to get it done, and Matthews and Marner are not going to get it done, there are not going to be a lot of goals on this team, and you're end up losing a lot of hockey games because of it. 
Yeah, I think I think that's maybe the most fr- frustrating thing about the start. I mean, obviously, the way the Stars have performed is, has been frustrating, but it's that you actually, and I don't think you can bank on this going forward, but the, the bottom six has chipped in. You've got a goal from Pierre Engvall. Jason Spetz yep. is turning back the clock, and again, I'm not saying you can bank on that, but that was maybe... Maybe the biggest question coming into the season was who other than the top six is going to score, and they've got it done. So that that's why I'm sitting here doing the dance of, okay, is this a death knell that the top six is performing this way, or is this proof that once they they come out of this, if they come out of this, that this is a team that's capable? You know, when I when I look at the the problems for this team, I think that maybe the maybe the biggest thing that plagues this group is I think other elite players, other elite teams have ways of doing other things outside of scoring mm-hmm. to get them feeling good and performing well, you know, digging pucks and winning puck battles or just being strong defensively. It feels to me like maybe the most kind of fatal flaw of this, this group is that the only way they get feeling good about themselves is to. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I agree with that. Um, you know, you look at that San Jose game. I thought it was a perfect example. If they had to come out, with some intensity, I think they could have really removed San Jose from the game early. And they just chose to, to wade in and try and play a skill game. And, uh, you know, maybe we'll, we'll, we'll get dancing a little bit and they'll be tired and we'll be able to score a little bit. But they didn't force the issue um, or the tempo whatsoever. Um, they, they played down to San Jose's energy level. And, you know, the other thing that I'm, I'm getting a little bit tired of hearing is, you know, after every game, well, uh, you know, we had the puck like uh, two thirds of the game. Uh, you know, we, we heard that after the, the game against San Jose on Friday. Oh, you know, we had the puck uh, more, a lot more than the opponent did. And then in that same response, it was, you know, they did a really good job of containing the center of the ice and clogging up the slot, making it difficult to get to the front of the net. Okay. We'll put those two things together. Right, because if you really think about it, it's kind of contradictory. Did you ever think that San Jose considers it a win for them, for the opponent to have the puck, but on the outside all game long? In other words, not getting great A chance, not getting to the front of the net. That's a win for San Jose. That's what they were trying to do. So the fact that they had the puck more than, well, that's, that's nice, but what was it leading to? Not much, not much. So I think, you know, we, we have to, I think, start to move away a little bit from this mindset that, well, if you have the puck all the time, you're going to win more games. Like, no, not if you don't get anything done when you have the puck game, isn't won by having the puck more. It's won by shooting it in the net more. And they just they they haven't come close to doing it um, effectively enough this year in order to win games. Yeah, Dave, I think that's a great point you bring up uh, about that Sharks game. It felt like they just they just took the Islanders' blueprint of you can have the puck as much as you want. You cannot yeah. have it inside of the circles, but you can have it all the time out there if you want. Uh, Dave, really, really enjoyed the chat. Thanks so much. Yeah, no, I was just going to say, San Jose knows they're not going to win a track meet with Toronto, so they don't want to rush up and down the ice, right? Trying to out- they, that, That's how they knew they were going to have to play. Clog it up, make it uncomfortable. If we can do that, chances are there's going to be no pushback. There wasn't, and we might have an opportunity to capitalize when we get chances. And they, they got a few chances, and they made no mistake in the goaltending. You know, it didn't help the Leafs either, but that's another story. Always fun, boys. Thanks. 
Always fun. Always fun. There he goes. Dave McCarthy, Toronto correspondent, NHL.com. Of course, also the host of the Sunday Brunch on Sirius XM NHL Radio. Follow him on Twitter at Dave A.M. McCarthy. I think, show that the point I raised with Dave at the very end there mm-hmm. is that that is the most troubling thing to me about this team when is that it seems to me the only thing. The only thing that can get them walking like they're all seven feet tall with their chest puffed out is the big offensive night. It it feels to me like this team doesn't get its identity or feel good about itself after a 3-1 hard-fought win or a 2-0 shutout. It feels to me like it has to be the power plays performing and they're they're putting up five or six. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. It definitely feels like, I mean, we talk about, or at least we ask the question, what is the identity of this team, right? And I think the identity of this team is that at least what they want it to be. I don't know that it is this, but that what they want it to be is a, is a high-flying, super-skilled, pretty-passing offense. And, and, like, we all know the skill level of Matthews and Marner and Tavares and Nylander can make it so, right? They can do that, but they just haven't been doing it. So, like you said, when they when they get into a grind fest, it really feels like, like they, it, it's slowly ebbs away just ekes out the uh the the spirit of this team which is really a bummer because look we were talking about right off the top of the show the try effort is not always there and when, when the when the immediate potential for a high-flying game gets stifled and shut down it really does feel like they respond negatively to that and i don't know what the i don't know what the answer is for that honestly I, I don't either, and the frustrating part about it is that you look at the construction of this team. Okay, I think I think we all have some questions about what exactly the fourth line will look like when Wayne Simmons has played 50 games this year and we're into February, and who knows how much treads left on Jason Spetz's tires. Those are those are fair questions to have. But that third line you've got now with Camp, Kasha, and it's been Kerfoot there lately. Engvall's had a spell there. That has proved to be a very capable, albeit not last night, because nothing last night... Uh, can be counted for anything but that has proved to be a very capable defensive line you finally got that group you've been clamoring for there and the top six can't figure it out and it's just it is all laid out right there in front of you you should have a goaltending tandem that once Barazic is healthy that you feel really good about the blue line it is the same group as last year that should look just as good okay Muzza a little longer in the tooth Brody a little longer in the tooth but not to the point where they should be rapidly declining it's just it's all laid out there in front of you and it's just you need your guys to perform you need the best players on this team to act like it uh 590 590 is the text line. Please include your name and location. Going to read some more text in the next hour. Uh, just to give you just to give you a little ooh, what's the word I'm looking for? A little tenor of the text line. Okay. How is the fan base feeling? Uh, you know, we talk about what what is you know what is the trial effort for this team. Mitch Marner's comments last night saying I'm not concerned. Well, uh, Slim in Guelph didn't like that. Marner pointed to a dump truck full of money and said I deserve this. He doesn't get to turn around and tell me when to be concerned. Uh, sounds to me like Swim in Slim in Guelph is already concerned. Want to hear from you guys more? Five ninety five ninety is the text line. Please include your name and location. I see you out there, trucker Brad Tim from the Hammer. We're going to get to your text in the next hour, but got to dive into the NBA. Lots of basketball talk coming up. Vivek Jacob at 2.30 and Lee Ellis, co-host of the No Dunks podcast. He joins us next. Take a spin around the NBA here on Sportsnet Today with Brent Gutting and Show Ali. First to the party and last to leave. What do you say we party together? This is Sportsnet Today. Sportsnet 590, the fan.
Sportsnet today, Brent Gunning, Show Ali alongside me. I want to thank everybody who helped us keep the show on the air today. Technical director, Andrew Dutch Holland. He knows why I'm thanking him right now. Producer extraordinaire, Kyle Norris. Thank you, thank you. And of course, thank you to our next guest, the very talented, the very big fan of the NBA, Lee Ellis, co-host of the No Dunks podcast on The Athletic. Lee, how are you doing today? Fine, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Always love talking to you. You know, there, there's a lot of big storylines in the NBA as we start off. What's going on with Kyrie Irving? What's going on with Ben Simmons? But I just want to talk to you about a team that is just, I mean, honestly, as a Raptors fan, this team is more times than not put a frown on my face. But right now I can remove myself and just be happy for them. The Chicago Bulls at 3-0. and You know, we, we see the ebbs and flows in this league of, you know, the Lakers get very good and the Warriors have had their kind of ups and downs. And yes, Chicago, of course, they, they've had their luck with some superstars. But it is really nice to just see a kind of new team back into the mix. They haven't felt like this, I think, since, since the kind of Derrick Rose Bulls. You know, what have you made of their start? And what do you think of the idea of just having some new teams up in the upper echelon of the league? Yeah, I mean, ultimately, basketball is entertainment, and the Bulls so far through three games have been super fun to watch. You know, offensively, they've got so many different guys who can score. You guys, obviously, everyone knows DeRozan from his days in Toronto. He's maybe not the most uh, enigmatic scorer, but he goes out there and gets the job done. Lonzo Ball there, he's really improved his game, especially his shot. And if he can keep that three-point shot going this season, then uh, that's going to be huge for Chicago. And, of course, Zach Levine, who he didn't have a huge game himself last night, but I think that's actually a good sign for Chicago. They get an easy victory, and they get a lot of different guys contributing there. But what really stood out to me is they had 11 blocks in the game last night. And if anyone hasn't seen the highlights, go and check them out there because Lonzo Ball had a huge block. And that's, I think, a symbol here of uh, Billy Donovan because coming into the season, I think a lot of people, myself included, looked at Chicago and thought, they're going to have no problem scoring the ball, but will they be able to stop anybody else? And last night, Detroit actually got out. I think it was 9-0 start there. Now, it's the first couple of minutes of any game. Anything can happen. But Chicago then really clamped down on Detroit, only allowed 82 points for the entire game. And that includes, you know, a significant amount of, uh, of uh, garbage time there in that fourth quarter. So really impressed to see Chicago. I think when they look at their off-season acquisitions, Alex Caruso coming over from the Lakers, I bet the Lakers would love to have him back right now. And then, of course, Lonzo Ball and DeRozan have been very, very impactful. So, yeah, I, I've been really enjoying Chicago's play so far. 3 and oh, um, you know, will they be able to maintain it? We'll see, of course, as the season unfolds. But uh, so far, so good for everything in the Windy City. Well, I want to ask you a little bit, uh, Lee, about uh, what's going on in the Big Apple. And I want to look at the New York Knicks. And 2-0 to start the season again early on. We'll see what goes on with the Knicks. But I, uh, I'm sure you may have seen the uh, the very entertaining video. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think you know what I'm talking about. Of the, of the Knicks fans outside MSG after the first win of the year. And it was a, it was a thrilling win. It was. It was a very fun game. And uh, the, a lot of Knicks fans being very colorful, let's say. Uh, generally, you can't say what they did say on the air here. But uh, they, I just wonder, look, when it comes to the Knicks where do you fall on that team because sometimes I feel like they are like a, you know I love watching RJ Barrett be certainly from a Canadian perspective but largely I feel like sometimes it is a collection of journeyman players and I just wonder again only two games into the season I'm sure things will change just in maybe in a couple weeks for every team but I just wonder where you fall on some a team like the Knicks this year 
Oh, well, I think it is. I am one of those who thinks it's important to have a good Knicks team because I, I think while it's fun to, you know, beat up on the Knicks and they've been a bit of a joke for a long time, certainly since the turn of this century, they've been a pretty bad team for the most part. I think it's better when they're a good team. So you know that if you go to New York and you go to Madison Square Garden, you get a win. It's a, it's a tough win. It's a tough win because you're not just playing against the team. As you mentioned there, those fans after the first game of the season, what an incredible game, double overtime victory against the Celtics. But you would think they just won the championship. They were going out of their mind. And I think that's a combination of the fact that, you know, you're beating the Celtics the first game of the season, but also because the Knicks made the playoffs last season. Julius Randle was an incredible player. He was an all-star. He won uh, most improved player. And so there's actually a feeling that this is a little more sustainable than it has been in the past where, as you mentioned, they pick up these guys on, on uh, you know, towards the end of their career, maybe overpay for them, and it doesn't really do much for them. But now they've got a good team and they get a, a guy like Evan Fournier in the offseason who, look, I'm not super high on him, but so far in his first couple of games, he's been really good for them. And given them what they missed in the playoffs last season, and I saw them up close down here against the Atlanta Hawks, Julius Randle was just overwhelmed in the, in the playoffs. He didn't have enough health. Now you've got a guy who can spread the floor score a little bit and also I think what's really important is just the presence of Mitchell Robinson there their centre who wasn't in the playoffs last season they were starting Taj Gibson in the centre spot there in the playoffs now that's not really going to get you too far so the Knicks have a little bit like Chicago made a few adjustments in the offseason brought in a couple of players and they're actually now a team that we've seen make the playoffs and now they're looking to take that next step and you know they're 2-0 so far they're very likely to be 3-0 after tonight because they're going at home uh, to play the Orlando Magic who are you know probably going to be one of the worst teams in the league and the Knicks go in as 12 point favorites now uh, in in the past you know, this is the sort of game where the Knicks might have just somehow blown it. But I just feel that they're just a little bit better. They've got uh, a great coach, obviously, in there, and Tom Thibodeau, who really does, uh, you know, he makes his money on the defensive end. And the Knicks' defense, again, during the regular season last year, was really, really good. So if you've got a good, solid defense and then you've got different uh, options on the offensive end to score, that is a recipe for at least being, you know, a, a, a team that has to at least make the playoffs and become a threat. And that's where the Knicks are. So we'll see how the uh, scene is outside the garden side. It, that video, I've watched that about a thousand times because it was crazy. <laughs> but it, it is fun to see the Knicks actually believing that maybe, just maybe, this team uh, is not going to let them down like they have in the past. But, you know, it's a long season, so we'll see what happens here. But uh, it's certainly fun. It's certainly fun to have the Knicks relevant again. And I think, you know, again, if you're a especially like for the Raptors. If you go to Madison Square Garden, you want to come out of there, if you can, with a victory against a really good, tough team, not just beating up on a team that's been a laughing stock for a number of years. Well, I just feel like, uh, Lee, generally speaking, if the Knicks are good, I would honestly think, and I know you kind of talked about this just now, but it's just better for the sport of basketball if the Knicks are good because of, of, of how long... The Knicks have been bad. And again, I, I know Raptors fans don't want to hear that whatsoever, and I totally understand that. But at the same time, I just, the sport of basketball, when the crown jewel or one of the crown jewels, I know the Lakers are one and there are a couple of other ones as well, but when a, when a massive market like the New York Knicks are, are better, I just think the entire sport feels a little more fun, honestly. Oh, I agree 100%. I mean, like I say, I think you want to have 
good competition against good teams. I mean, sure, every now and again, it's nice to blow out a team. But I think ultimately, you want to come away from a team that is, again, more than just a team. You want to go to one of those arenas where it's like, man, you feel like you're battling the crowd as well. Because that game the other night on Thursday night against the Celtics, it was more like the fans were almost on the court. Like, you know, it's almost like you're, you're, you know, you step out of court. And again, we saw that in the playoffs last season, where it's like Trey Young had to stand on the side and the, and the refs almost had to say to the fans, you know, get back, give him a little bit of room here so he can throw the ball in. And, um, you know, as long as there's none of the incidents that we saw, you know, anyone spitting on fans and throwing things like, we don't want any of that. But certainly I think it adds an element of intimidation for the opposing team if you can, you know, you, you feel like the crowd is ready to sort of hang on every single basket and every single miss by the opponent. So, um, you know, it, it's fun, you know, the, because there are some other arenas throughout the league, and I'm not, I'm not going to sort of defame any team right now, but where you go and you sort of think, like, it doesn't have that same atmosphere or that same vibe. You want to go to a situation where the teams are really, you know, bringing all that energy and the fans are there and exciting and, uh, and it's great. So, I hope that um, the Knicks can keep this up for a while because I I do think it adds uh, an extra element to the NBA and I think it's important for the league. Yeah, the the good thing is you don't need to name those fan bases. They know. They they know. They've sat in they've sat in their their home uh, home arena watching games, going, man, how come everyone's so quiet around here? They they uh, they they absolutely know. And the other thing about the Knicks too, maybe this is corny, maybe this is cheesy, I don't know. And look, we we love Navbatia here, our super fan in Toronto. But when you have like a world renowned superstar that is at the throes of it and is kind of acting a part of it, of course, I'm talking about Spike. That stuff just matters too. You got Jack in L.A., Jimmy Goldstein's everywhere. Just just having that guy in the mix with something to actually cheer for uh matters i should probably take a look at the uh the western conference as well you know it's been wide open for for a few years out there obviously lakers not off to the start they'd wanted oh and two warriors kind of back where are you how are you kind of looking at the western conference and you know what do you think the things will kind of finish like there nuggets obviously with a great year last year suns as well getting to a final what do you what do you look at the how do you look at the west heading into this season yeah, I mean, right now you've got the Jazz on top, and I think the Utah Jazz have shown us over the last probably, you know, what, three or four seasons, even longer, that they're a really good regular season team. In fact, I think the Jazz could probably end up with the best record, certainly in the Western Conference, because they've got all those staples. They've got a good defense. They've got the Defensive Player of the Year, of course, in Rudy Gobert. They've got a coach who's been there forever in Quinn Snyder, and they've got then the superstar talent in Donovan Mitchell, and then you've got a couple of the other role players. I mean, Mike Conley's probably more than a role player, but, you know, he's an all-star, but they've got that sort of uh, leadership, the experience, the veteran um, uh, locker room there as well. But we just haven't seen yet the Jazz really be able to sort of translate their regular season success into playoff success. And so it's, it's but to me, it's like they're, they're just going to win 55, 50, you know, maybe 60 games because they just know how to uh, navigate through the regular season. So I think you're going to see them on top. I, I think Denver as well. Um, it, of course, I think a little bit depends on when Jamal Murray comes back and how quickly he can have an impact again because Nikola Jokic coming off the MVP season, you know, fantastic player, no doubt about it. They've got a very good offensive unit, but I think they, they're a better team when Jamal Murray is there. We saw what he could do in the playoffs down there in the bubble uh, in, in Orlando. So I think if the uh, Nuggets can sort of tread water until Jamal comes back, that'll be really important for them. And then there are a couple of teams that, you, you know, are sort of vying for that third through fifth spot. 
definitely throw the Warriors in there uh, the way they've started the season off. Steph's looked incredible. Well, he certainly did in his second game there where he had the 45 points. Clay Thompson's still not back. I think they're hoping for some time around January, which will be huge for them. I mean, he hasn't played for over two years since since the, the championship loss to the Raptors, which is incredible. That feels like it was 10 years ago sometimes. And then you've got a few other teams. The Dallas Mavericks getting the win there in Toronto last night. Uh, the Raptors look like they just kind of ran out of gas in that second half, which is not a, not a good sign when it's only your third game of the season. So a little bit of a concern there. They had that lead early and then uh, couldn't really do much in the second half. But Dallas, while you have Doncic out there, who is a, uh, an MVP candidate, I, mean, I think he was the favourite coming into the season, the Mavericks are, 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 a, are a team to watch. But it really depends on how much Chris Dapps, Porzingis can give them consistently throughout the season. And if he can stay on the floor, you know, he's virtually got an unguardable shot. But we have also seen at times from him that he tends to go missing a little bit. So that's a little bit of a concern there for Dallas. But Doncic has has got that ability to sort of carry them and drag them uh, into the playoffs and then see what happens from there. And then you've got teams, you know, the Clippers, Kawhi Leonard, he's likely out for most of the season. But if Paul George can keep them afloat, then the Clippers could be a a real danger team uh, come uh, playoff time if Kawhi comes back and is, is able to, you know, be good and healthy straight away. And then, yeah, the Lakers, that, that's going to be a story to watch. Talking about the Knicks there and one of the team, the NBA's glamour teams doing really well. Well, the Lakers are almost the other end of the spectrum right now. They were fighting with each other. Uh, Anthony Davis and Dwight Howard there in the second game of the season. Uh, and, and, and they've lost both of those games. And now tonight they're at home again and they face the uh, Memphis Grizzlies who are, are unbeaten so far. And they've got their uh, rising star. John Morant is an incredible talent to watch, but he's more than just a highlight reel factor. He's, uh, he's got all the skills and the talent there as well. And Jaron Jackson Jr., who's been missing uh, for most of his, a lot of his early career, in fact, with injuries, but he's already had an impact so far there. So I really like the West. I think there are, you know, I think that sort of one and two seed is probably more likely to be Utah-Denver. But after that, I think you've got probably four or five teams who could really make a case of being the third best team. And again, come playoff time, they've all got a sort of strong case that could be make them almost favourite, even if they don't necessarily have home court advantage. So I think that's another good thing for the NBA. I think we like to be able to go in. You know, the, the one knock when the Warriors were so dominant was it felt that you had to sort of talk yourself into anyone else being able to beat them at any point. Right now, I don't think that's the case. I think there's a lot of teams that could really make a strong case to not just finish top of their conference or, or division, but also to, uh, to make the finals. And I think that's a good thing for the NBA to have a little bit more parity and evenness and teams that are, are, are legit chances rather than just that, uh, that sort of heavy favourite like the Warriors were for probably three or four years there. Lee, we'll get you out of here on a Raptors note. And, of course, you mentioned the Mavericks. They, they beat the uh, Raptors at home last night. Um, we saw Doncic up close. We saw Porzingis up close. Tim Hardaway, he was, he was great last night uh, as well. But, you know, I want to ask you about Scotty Barnes, of course, the Raptors' fourth overall draft pick. Now, um, it's still early in his career, um, but uh, can we agree that he will be the next Giannis Antetokounmpo? <laughs> I mean, so far, so good. It's been fun. I, I think it was the first game of the season. Uh, he had a skyhook, and Matt Devlin said he's bringing back the skyhook. Right. So, uh, you know, we've always been waiting for someone to, to reintroduce the skyhook into the game. Maybe it's Scotty Barnes. But uh, it is great to see a guy who was drafted, and he's getting some minutes, and he's having an impact already, and he's a huge fan favorite. I mean, that, that's great stuff. But that's the thing with the Raptors now. They're, they've clearly moved on from... Uh, certainly the main parts of the championship team two years ago. I think it's what, Fred, Pascal, OG, 
and Boucher, the only guys actually left on the roster. You know, obviously Kyle Lowry's gone and Kawhi went a couple of years ago. So that's the important thing for Masai Jiri. It's like you can't live off that, that championship forever. You've got to sort of rebuild the team. And I think handing the keys now over to Freddie, who'll, who'll be the point guard. And, and, you know, when Pascal comes back, that's going to be important. But then you're seeing these other guys who are coming through the system so that they will be ready to contend in the next couple of years. I don't think the Raptors are a championship contender this season, but certainly uh, anything short of the playoffs, I think, will be a bit of a failure too. I don't think that, uh, that it's one of those rebuild situations where you're giving yourself a season to, to get the pieces in, uh, in place. I think it's like, the, you know, they want to make the playoffs and they certainly want to get, that, uh, get back into that mix after missing out last season. Uh, so that's important. But I think, yes, yeah, Scotty Barnes so far has shown to me, he looks like he's got the sort of right uh, mentality, the right approach to the game. He doesn't rush through his things like a lot of rookies do. And uh, if he can turn out pretty nice, then um, I think the Raptors will be pretty happy with the with the pick they got out of him. So um, I don't remember a, a, Raptor, a Raptor rookie being hyped up quite as much as uh, Scotty Barnes. I think people are, are pinning the franchise hopes on him in some ways, and uh, and maybe that will play out in time. But uh, it certainly is good to see people excited and happy and, and, and him out there early on in his career, uh, producing pretty good results. Well, Lee, it's, it's not NBA caliber. I will admit that. But I And I'm retired from pickup hoops now. But in my University of Windsor days, on open runs, I was the master of the very slow, very methodical, and sometimes effective skyhook. So it's not completely dead. It is still lurking, <laughs> at least up here in Canada. Just thought I'd let you know that. Uh, well, <laughs> yeah, we've all got that, that hidden talent that we just hope someone would discover at some point and put us into the NBA. But uh, unfortunately, it didn't happen for us. But uh, that's to say, we picked up oops i'm only three point line to three point line these days i don't go inside and defend and rebound or anything i just shoot and defend on the perimeter and that's it that's all i do so uh yeah it's great to be out on the court though i'm playing again with some friends yes it is yes it is great to talk to you today uh lee ellis co-host of the no dunks podcast on the athletic uh there he goes uh thanks so much for for him to joining us today you know show the scotty barnes hype is real we're going to talk to vivek about that in a second and you know uh, as the kids would say the the vibes per 60 are just just off the charts with him he's he's shouting himself out for wearing dior glasses in his post game telling himself to chill having complete uh existential conversations with himself and looking great on the court uh the love is building there Something else I wanted to talk to you about that we mentioned with Lee, and I want to get back to the Leafs, and this is my kind of uh, my olive branch there. Okay. We're talking about the Knicks, and I just I cannot help but feel the kindred spirit <laughs> from Leafs fans to Knicks fans, okay. except Knicks fans are actually allowed to be happy about their team. If the Leafs would have been celebrating after the first game of a regular season, and I'm not even talking about this iteration, but a couple seasons ago, we would be so quick to the play and the parade jokes. Oh, and I'm just, I'm just happy to see what it must be like for someone of a fan of that, a team like that, that gets to be happy and people say, what a great story instead of, oh, classic Toronto bias. So I just, I, I could not, I, I'm so happy for the Knicks fans because, you know, we don't get to experience that here, but I'm happy for them. I will say on that, video if you haven't because i understand we can't play it because there is just so much profanity there is like a titanic amount of profanity like if i asked andrew dutch hall and our technical director to grab it it would mostly be like beeps because it's it would have to be completely beeped out but if you are comfortable with that sort of thing i highly suggest to go look it up because it is truly truly one of the funniest things i have seen in at least a month um and and yeah like the knicks fans being so jacked up for their team is uh, it's true? It's truly incomparable because you're right. If the if Leafs fans ever in a million years got honestly, man, like for any win at any point in the regular season, 
if any group of Leaf fans acted even as half as crazy as those those people did, they would get lampooned from here to the moon. And and you know what? I would I would pile on. I would dogpile too because that would be like it, just based on everything that everyone has experienced over the last couple of years. And I and I, I think everyone like and, and I think this is kind of the tenor on the text line too. You mentioned that word before. It just kind of feels like when it comes to the Leafs. Everyone is a little disconnected this season. Everyone's a little, a little, has a little bit of an edge to how they talk about the Leafs this year. You know, it just feels like for the first time in a long time, at least, at least, you know, in the last maybe 10 years, because there was a kind of an accepted part to the Leafs being bad. And you think to yourself, okay, well, there's no expectations here. And then, you know, the, the rebuild was kind of boosted up ahead of schedule when they made the playoffs that year against the, uh, against the Capitals. And there was all those, all those overtime games in the first round and so on. Expectations have been raised now and if they continue to do things not just like they did last night but over the last couple of seasons then boy i i fear that the disconnect will will get even greater even while guys like matthews and marner and tavares and nylander are still under contract which is a which is a bummer because they're supposed to have rightly so high expectations let me let me you, you say it's a bummer let me throw this bummer okay. at you and this will this will give you all i mean if you've listened to me do shows here a lot you already know this about me but but for anyone who's learning you know we're all we're all getting to know each other sure for anyone who wants a peek inside my psyche <laughs> the second this leafs core got put together and tavares was here and it really looked dangerous and they started winning you know what my first thought was show it was, well, I mean, if this core doesn't get it done, that's how you become the Chicago Cubs. Right. Like, you know, the Cleveland Browns, the Cleveland baseball team, they've been going for 50 years. It is what it is. It's sad. But you don't get the the Red Sox drought that had happened until they broke it in 04, or the Cubs drought that was happening until, I think, 16, until you have, a, like, a few really special groups roll through that just can't get it done. And, you know, everyone who's, you know, older than me, the, the people, my, my parents' generation who, you know, I was alive for it, but I don't really remember it. These, these Gilmore and Clark runs, that was a special team, and they didn't get it done. And this group that they've built here, it is a special group of talented players. But that's how you become those truly tortured fan bases if they don't get it done. And I'm not even going to go into the 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 group that that you know scarred me most of my core, the Sundin Tucker <laughs> Tucker era teams. Right. Okay, that's how you become a truly cursed, a truly sad franchise is to have amazing players like this and not be able to have your moment in the sun. And that's I think the for somebody like me who has this boogeyman creeping over their shoulder, the sports boogeyman at all times, I can't help but think that. You know, you mentioned where people are at with the fan base. Mm. I just want to read this text here from Kevin and Markham. Okay. My love for the Leafs is the most toxic relationship I've ever been in. <laughs> and he started it off with, hey, because he's very polite. Maybe because the, <laughs> the thing he loves the most keeps torturing him. I cannot explain to you how many people I know in my life who feel that way. I have felt that way at times. I'm raising my newborn son to be a Leafs fan. I sit here wondering at times, what on earth am I doing? And the frustrating part is, if you feel this way after you blow a 3-1 lead in the playoffs, it at least feels earned. But I'm even sitting here going, how am I this apoplectic to a certain extent? Six games into the season. And I think that's the thing that a lot of people are, are quibbling with. Because is it six games into the season? Or are we really talking about five years into this experiment? And that's where the frustration comes from. Yeah, boy, the last six games have certainly felt like several years on top of that, right? It just, it, it, it really is. 
I, like, I, I think that is the perfect encapsulation of people's relationships to the Leafs right now, right? I mean, there, there will always be truthers. And on the, on, you know, conversely, there will always be people who, no matter what happens, barring a Stanley Cup, they'll, they'll decry any move and, and so on, right? I, and I get that. That's hap- that's, that'll be the case for any kind of fan base in any sport in the world. But I, I, I just, yeah, it's just the way the Leafs have been, and again, to use the word disconnected from the actual fan base, more this year than any other year, I think just shows that, you know, a lot of people are are feeling the way Kevin is feeling. And let me ask you this, before we hit the break, real quick, mm. a, a lot of people I've spoken to in the past, I don't know, but maybe like, let's say in the past several months, going back to the end of the last season, again, bringing up that loss to the Habs in the playoffs, a lot of people say that, you know, uh, uh, you know, good teams are forged in the in the crucible of of defeat and all that stuff, right? And I, you know, I, I think I believe that. I don't know to a certain extent. It's a cliche. I get it. Um, but at the same time, a lot of people bring up the comparison of the of the uh, Washington Capitals and how they constantly, you know, got knocked out despite high expectations. I sometimes I feel like that's kind of a phony excuse. Like I don't know, where, I don't know where you fall on the comparison to Ovechkin and the Capitals, and then they finally bro- broke through. I think that's particular year by beating the Sidney Crosby and the Pittsburgh Penguins, and then and then they went on to a Stanley Cup, right? And a lot of people use that comparison. I just like I don't know where I fall on that. Sometimes I just feel like that's just like kind of just making a comparison just for the sake of making it. No one's gonna be upset with it. That's a great question. No one's gonna be upset with this group if they win a cup. If in six years' time, John Tavares is, you know, swimming face down in the the reflecting pool at Nathan Phillips Square, or I don't know, whatever our equivalent of of Ovi swimming in the fountains outside of the Nationals game would be, no one's going to be upset. They got it done. But the, the point of building a group like this isn't to win one time after a thousand heartbreaks. It's to be the Blackhawks. It's to be the Penguins, to have a million cracks at this. So again, no one's going to sit here and say, job not done. If you only get one in 10 years time, no one's going to say that. But that's not the point of this. That's not the plan. You don't want to have to go through 30,000 heartbreaks before you finally break through. You don't want to have Austin Matthews. I think the other part of this that's kind of important, and I have been the guy least pumping the tires on worrying about this. But if they are not a team that is sniffing the Stanley Cup and are not winning rounds in the playoffs, what is the guarantee that Austin Matthews is here for 100 years like Ovechkin was in Washington? That's the reason why you can't point to that team as your model. I I get it. I understand it takes time to come, but that's the reason why you can't point at it. If you are not having super close calls, and the Capitals didn't even really have that many close calls. It was a lot of second-round exits. I don't know that Matthews is sticking around for that. And if Austin Matthews isn't sticking around past his contract, I genuinely don't know what you've built here. I yeah. truly don't. I, I don't know. I know we like to joke that, you know, when Austin Matthews is out, Connor McDavid will walk his way to Toronto. Well, no, but... it's, it's Tavares. That's the way it's going to go. Right, and right. I still believe that's going to happen. <laughs> but he's only coming here if Matthews is here. Yeah. So. Look, we have to. All I'll say is, uh, and again, I, I don't want to be the the negative Ned, but I, I'll, all I'll say on the Leafs is, um, to before we break here, is that uh, we better hope the Coyotes no longer exist as a franchise by the time Austin Matthews can go to free agency, because that that does like. I think I think there will be a, a good a good uh, argument for Austin Matthews to stay here because of the way that the team believes in him and so on, right? I think it's pretty likely that he stays. It's not a hundred percent because it ne- it's never a hundred percent, and I'm sure Islanders fans would have told you the same thing right up until John Tavares decided to be a Toronto Maple Leaf. I think the biggest thing that is going to help the Leafs when Matthew's deal is up in three years after this one, or three years, is that the cap will still be flat. 
So he is not looking at a $15 million contract. Right. He's kind of looking at the contract he has now, maybe rounded up to 12 or something in and along those lines. So I think that's the one thing they kind of have going for him. And I'll tell you, it's not the Coyotes that terrify me. It's the L.A. Kings. Uh, they've Ugh. got the pedigree. They've got cup champs on that team. They've got some good young players now. That'd be the it's worst. Terrifies me, it terrifies me. It terrifies me. terrifies me. And we should stop talking about it. Hey, Scotty Barnes, he's so far away <laughs> from being able to leave us. Let's just talk about that. Vivek Jacob, Raptors uh, writer for Raptors.com, also the host of North Cuts on CBC. He'll join us next here on Sportsnet Today. Also, please keep the text coming, 590-590. Include your name and location. Uh, Tim from The Hammer. I have a wonderful text from you. I'm all queued up, ready to read. We will. We'll do it before this hour is up. Here we are on Sportsnet today on Sportsnet 590, the fan and the Sportsnet radio network. Sportsnet 590. Sportsnet today. Brent Gunning, show Ali here with me for about another hour and a half in today's program. Lots more on the Leafs. Want to hear from you on the text line, 590-590. Please include your name and location. Rachel Dory going to join us after 3.30 as well to dive back into that. Going to talk some baseball in the next hour. But right now, we have to talk about potentially Toronto's new favorite son, Scotty Barnes. No, Vivek, we, we like you. Not enough to call you Toronto's uh, new potential favorite son. Thrilled <laughs> to have you on the show today. Vivek Jacob, uh, writer, Raptors.com, host of North Cuts for CBC. How are you doing today, man? I'm doing great. How are you? Doing well, doing well. You know, I am, uh, I got to be honest, I'm a little amazed at how quickly everyone came around on Scotty Barnes. You know, we... We have all, I think, done the collective thing where we said, no, I criticized the, the pick on draft night. Not me. Not me. I'm trusting Masai, <laughs> of course. We all knew this was going to work out. It's amazing how quickly this guy has turned the pace on or turned the page on, on how he was kind of viewed on draft night to now. We're just a couple of games into the season, but I even felt like this turn going back to summer league and when he was here working out, it, it just feels like uh, the, the Raptors fan base has completely embraced Scotty Barnes. Believe in Masai, believe in Bobby. I mean, I remember when people were trying to like galaxy brain the whole thing and say, oh, you know, but they're used to picking in the 20s. They're not used to having a lottery pick. They might mess this up. If you're looking through the keyhole that and getting that deep into it, uh, you know, you're probably better off just trusting them. I mean, Scotty looks incredible. And, you know, Jason Kidd's comments after the game uh, against the Mavs, you know, he's talking about how Scotty just is just special. He just understands how to play at this level. And what's the one thing we see with rookies across any sport that, who you just know are going to be special? The game just seems to come to them slowly right everything seems to be at their own pace scotty doesn't seem rushed at any point he doesn't seem like he's out of place at any point and i think that's the thing that stands out the most to me everything is under his control you know vivek when it comes to scotty barnes too like it, it, you look at the kind of things that he's really good at like you said the the great ones haven't come to them slowly and he has Great instincts, it certainly looks like. He has a good, and I don't know that there's a better word for this, the other than feel. He has a, a great feel for the yep. game. And I just wonder, like, are those the kinds of things that you basically either have or you don't, right? Like, some things can, like in a player's game can certainly be refined, but I wonder if, if are th those are things that you have innately, essentially, as a player. I think 
certain aspects of it can be developed over time. Say, for example, you know, you get a point guard. Like I, I always think of the Tony Parker example and how hard Greg Popovich was on him early in his career because he knew, okay, I have this great scorer on my hands. How do I make him a better team player? How do I make him a, a purer point guard uh, in that traditional sense and making his teammates better? And over time, you saw that develop and eventually, you know, they're, they're winning titles together. But I think with Scotty Barnes, the biggest thing is it accelerates that development process because when you're already able to see these things and because of the size he has and the ability to bring the ball up, he has so many options every time he's going up the floor. It, defensively, there's so many different ways that he can uh, he himself can attack uh, you know whoever he's defending and force them into difficult positions. And so I think that's what stands out to me is when you have that type of feel, then everything else comes along that much quicker. You can even look at someone like Giannis Antetokounmpo, who, who you might say, you know, came into the league as an athlete first and less so of a basketball player. And that aspect needed to come along over time. So now when you have the strength, uh, the speed, the athleticism, and you've got the feel, getting to his ceiling is going to come quicker. Yeah, and that that's the I think that's the interesting thing and the that's where the pumping of the brakes is going to have to happen with people. When you see a guy who's built the way he is and moves the way he is and and as you just laid out is already kind of comfortable making some of those decisions, you can really start to dream. And I I'm not sitting here saying pump the brakes that he he can't develop into a Giannis one day. It's just it's amazing how quickly we can kind of get ahead of ourselves. And I think that'll be the interesting kind of dance with mm-hmm. him this year. You know, another player who I think has kind of had maybe the perfect development curve in what was expected of him and where he was drafted into what he's become now is is OG Ananobi. You know, we we saw it coming with the games in the preseason. Obviously, he had a tremendous, I mean, really first half against the Mavericks yesterday. You know, how much can we expect OG to be this guy now who can give you 20? You know, it was one thing uh, consistently give you 20. It was one thing when you say, hey, play good defense and hit your open shots, but this team clearly needs more than that from him now, especially without Siakamon on the floor yeah and i think the growth process he's going through right now is going to make him that much better when pascal siakam is back because i think what we've seen through those first couple of games was yeah okay you're the number one option that doesn't mean you just take every shot that's available to you we've seen him rush some some shots we've seen him take some contestant shots that he really doesn't need to uh, and then I thought against the Mavericks, the process was much better. The first couple uh, opportunities he gets, he's going to the basket. Then there's, uh, you know, a straight up jump shot from the mid range, and then he goes outside. And I think when he starts to really understand that in terms of building his game inside out, I mean, everyone talks about how strong he is and how he himself doesn't realize just how strong he is. Go inside, establish yourself there, and then room's going to open up for you outside to do more things. And then, you know, just seeing the ball go in the basket a couple of times makes the game that much easier too. 
Yeah, I think whenever Siakam returns, just the sheer his sheer presence and how it'll affect how other teams can double team guys and how they can devote their defensive attention. That's something I'll be really interested to see. I don't want to like necessarily play the oh well, Toronto wasn't fully healthy card, but it would be interesting to see how even Nick Nurse deploys Siakam you know, within the starting lineup to contain guys like Doncic and Porzingis and so on. Right? It'll be fascinating. I think when when Siakam comes back, just for for every matchup, really for the Raptors' defensive potential. I do want to ask you a little bit, Vivek, about the shooting guard situation, Gary Trent Jr. and uh, Goran Dragic. And, 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 you know, Dragic was, I mean, I think it was it's safe to say he was it was pretty good in the season opener. And then last night was uh, not great, right? He was he was basically, uh, you couldn't really notice him really out on the court off the bench. And I just, I wonder what you think his, his addition to this team will look like going forward, especially if Gary Trent Jr. essentially develops into a slightly less offensively talented, but probably better defensively Norman Powell. Yeah, you know, I think that's a really intriguing question because the other side of this is how well Scotty Barnes has played and the fact that once Siakam comes back, this is not someone you can take out the starting lineup. This isn't someone who's just filling in for Pascal Siakam. So I genuinely believe that when Siakam is back, there's no way you're benching Siakam. You're not benching OG. You're not benching Scotty, and you're not benching Fred. So... I do envision a scenario where Dragic is out of the rotation and Trent Jr. is the backup too because with those four that I mentioned, you're going with Precious or Kem at center. Maybe you might get funky, you know, depending on the matchup and have OG as the starting center, but most nights that's probably what it's going to look like. So, yeah, I do envision a scenario down the road where Dragic is uh, out of a place uh, and, you know, he's just depended on to be that veteran and maybe step in if there there's an injury. If not, just be a guiding force throughout this and uh, stay as positive as you can until, you know, eventually maybe there's a trade to be found. Do you think, Vivek, that if, let's say, Drogic does get kind of phased out a little bit down the stretch because of the way this team is configured, do you think that might lead? Again, it depends on a lot of factors here, but I, I feel like there's a, a scenario where you might be able to see Malachi Flynn get a couple more minutes than we have been seeing through the first couple, you know, three games of the season so far. Yeah, I can see that for sure. I think, you know, when, when you look at the way the offense has struggled, I mean, when they struggle, like they arrive at a screeching halt. And then, so I think that's something where, whether it's, you know, Delano Benton, who's looked to, to who's been looked at to spark things. Uh, I think, Malachi Flynn is going to have his share of matchups where he is the better option. You know, Banton, you know, he comes in against Luca. That's a size factor. And so with Flynn, when he has more traditional matchups, I, I would like to see him get that opportunity and run the second unit uh, and get some quality minutes there. And again, going back to uh, the point being made earlier about how Siakam can make OG Ananobi better. I mean, it's that holdover effect of having those guys stabilize those units as well right like when you've got scotty barnes in foul trouble og Ananobi in foul trouble but siakam is healthy now you can have a siakam on the court with a fred or then you can have so you'll always have two out of those four ideally on the court and so i think that's something that should see the raptors see a nice boost and we haven't even talked about utah watanabe 
No, we we haven't. Maybe we'll get to that a little later. I want to stick on Siakam for for a second here, though. You know, yeah. this is a guy who's who's place in the fan base. I I think you know it's it's not dissimilar to how we've seen other athletes in this city treated. People kind of get entrenched on either side of the issue in a in a blind defense or a blind you know borderline sports hatred of, of the player. I think this is maybe the best case scenario he has to kind of just reset what he is for this team, this version of this team, without Kyle Lowry here, it, it, of course, without Kawhi as well, the fact that he's not going to be here and he's going to come in and there's a world where he is the kind of tide that lifts all boats when he comes back to this Raptors team and people are reminded of just kind of how special he can be. It, it feels to me like him getting to come in, you know, partway through this season, fresh, healthy, energized, all of that stuff, feels to me like it, it's a chance for him to kind of almost recalibrate what he is to parts of this fan base. I mean, yeah, these few weeks that he's out, it's basically Pascal Siakam appreciation. Anytime you see the Raptors (laughs) in the half court, right? Uh, I think when you look at the last season, last season and a half, I I think what sticks out in people's minds are those buzzer beaters that rimmed out because everyone associates that with what a number one option is quote unquote supposed to do. But when you really focus in on what he developed over this past year and a half, especially, I I thought, uh, last year, where that kind of went unnoticed, was the way he made teammates better and the way he was able to react to double teams. And I thought his passing, his playmaking really leveled up. And, And that's where, when you talk about the Raptors improving their depth, when you have someone like Pascal Siakam now who's going to be able to handle the ball, attract attention, and then make the right pass, everyone is going to move down a peg in terms of their responsibilities once Siakam is back, and that's going to shift everyone into positions that they're much better suited for. And I think that is going to make the team as a whole, not just OG, not just Fred, everyone down the order is going to benefit. You know, you mentioned Fred just now, and I just wonder, what do you think through three games is the maybe the starkest difference in play styles, starkest contrast, perhaps is a better way of saying it, between how Fred runs this offense and how Kyle Lowry, of course, used to? Well, I mean, I, th- I think the first thing is Kyle's ability to just push the pace. I think uh, Kyle, you know, we remember those hit-ahead passes and just getting the offense going earlier, uh, quicker, uh, and just seeing passes that, frankly, Fred VanVleet right now does not have in his game. And we talked about field before. It's maybe, you know, you get to that point where you kind of just accept that he doesn't have it, and that's fine. To me, he's someone that's kind of better playing off the ball. And when I talk about those four guys together, Pascal Siakam, Scotty Barnes, OG Ananobi, and Fred VanVleet, it would not surprise me that uh, Scotty Barnes and Pascal Siakam spend more time on the ball uh, than Fred, and he's sort of running around screens and getting free and getting open. Uh, because for me, when he's off the ball and able to take shots beyond the arc, that's when he's at his most effective. I mean, I don't have to describe what he did in those finals and uh, to think back to what he's capable of when he's in that role. So I think that's where he's at his best. And right now, I think he's just doing the best he can uh, having to lead this team. 
Yeah, the only, the only problem with that being at his, when he's at his best is he had a chipped tooth that he looked like he had been in a street fight. So I don't know <laughs> that he wants to have to carry himself around all the way that time. But uh, that that image of him screaming with the blood sc- coming down his face, it's going to be burned into a lot of people's minds for a very, very long time. And uh, hey, yeah, The bank account's a little bigger to take care of all that stuff. Also true, yes. That's a great point. That's a great point. He bet on himself uh, and he won. Uh, Vivek, thanks so much for the time, man. Really, really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me, guys. There he goes. Show. You know how I know it's a different Raptors season? Okay. We, one, Scotty Barnes is here and we have something new to gush about. But two, we barely talked about the center position. That was pretty much the yeah. the crux of the entire interview every time we talked to someone covering the Raptors last year. Uh, Kyle Lowry, should they trade him? And uh, is anyone over 6'8 ever going to play for this team? <laughs> and we didn't uh, we didn't talk about either of those things uh, today. So amazing how much things have shifted in Raptors land. It's true. I mean, look, like I think when we, going forward... Will we probably have to have that conversation? Probably, right? Because of the the front court for this team is just generally speaking, it's not very large. It's not a large team. We saw them struggle against in the preseason against guys like Joel Embiid. And even last night, they struggled like a little bit against um, Chris Stapp's Porzingis. And I, I don't know if you saw the great zinger from our own Michael Grange that Porzingis is like Andrea Bargnani with a max deal, which made me laugh out loud when I saw that because it is kind of true. Uh, because for someone like for someone who is seven foot three, Porzingis does not go up and like battle on the boards and, you know, clang and bang as much as you might imagine someone that size to do. But um, ha- still having said that, the Raptors certainly do not have anyone who is that size, right? Like I really like what I've seen from Precious Achua so far. Um, Chris Boucher and Kem Birch have been good in spurts, but I mean, I think Boucher got benched at one point yesterday. So it'll be really interesting to see how the uh, five, or I guess maybe even the four spot does play out for the rest of the season. But I mean, boy, it, it uh, I, like this team is basically just like a team of wings, essentially. Like outside of Fred Van Vliet, it's a team of like, identically sized six eight, six nine wings. And we saw how much success they had when they can roll out just wave after wave of wings at a team like the Boston Celtics, but against a team like the Mavericks who have a guy like Doncic, I mean, not every team has a guy like Doncic, let's be real, right? But when a team that can roll the pick and roll, so run the pick and roll so effectively, it will, it will cause some issues going forward. But Hey, I mean, it's a, it's, it's, those will be matchup based. And I expect the starting lineup to uh, be matchup based as a result couple things there. Porzingis, you know, we were talking, or I was talking earlier with Lee Ellis about playing pickup hoops. Porzingis is every tall guy that you hate having on your team <laughs> in pickup hoops. It's like, can you can you stand in there and put your arms up and grab a rebound? No, I'm just going to hang out here. Shoot threes. Way more fun and less physically challenging. Porzingis, don't, the only difference is, you know, he's kind of capable of it and good at it, and usually those guys in pickup hoops couldn't couldn't hit waterfall. You're pretty tall. Boat. You're like the Porzingis. Yeah, well, but I'm also the guy who, when this goes back to uh, when we were back in the office and we'd have these these five-on-five full-court runs, and all I would do when I'm in that situation is immediately start negotiating with the big man on the other team of like, we don't, <laughs> there's no fast breaks here. We can go up and down the floor, but let's do it at a nice gingerly uh, big man pace. And then the other thing about the Raps being this team of just six, nine gangly guys is you can you can easily see both sides of it. You can see the night where it is just a defensive machine and no one can get anything going against them. And how can you ever get past this this octopus of a team that's just long arms and length and limbs everywhere? And then you see nights that go kind of like last night went, where it's, okay, you need some diversity on, on offense here. You need somebody who is capable of kind of generating their own shot and creating it, whose name isn't Fred Van Vliet. OG trying to be that guy. You hope one day Scotty can be that guy. But you, you kind of 
kind of saw both both sides of it uh, uh, there. Anything else on the wraps for, uh, from you before we uh, we sneak in a couple more texts here? I will just say that I uh, was very pleased. I took JD Bunkus decided to post on Twitter a uh, a bet builder or something like that for mm. like plus I think it was like eleven and a half points. Take the over and take the over on eleven and a half. Or uh, pardon me, five and a half or six and a half rebounds. And I I don't know if you know this. I'm not a very good better or gambler. And I decided to follow JD's advice. And you know what? It paid off. I made I made some money last night on the Raptors, despite the happiness hedged the Raptors a little bit. And you know what? It did pay off. So uh, thank you, Scotty Barnes. Thank you, JD Bunkus. I yes, think that's also. what you mean to say there. I mean, I guess Scotty Barnes uh, helped out uh, as well there. All I'll right, never, I'll never give JD Bun- the credit he deserves. Probably. More, it's more okay. All we need to know about J- JD is I'm trying to remember if you if you were there for this. I know definitely Rob Wall was there with me for this. Is okay. when we had Gary Payton on the station, and I made sure to tell him to just stick it to JD a little bit <laughs> that he wasn't there to do the interview. So Excellent. nothing we ever say about him when he's not on the air uh, can 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 harm him uh, more than that. All right, want to get to the text line five ninety five ninety. Please include your name and location. We're gonna have Rachel Dory on a little later on in the show. Dive back into the Leafs. But we want to hear from you guys as well, Tim from Hamilton. Now. This is, I think, I don't know how much of this I agree with, but I think this is a very common sentiment in Leafsland, so I just wanted to give it its proper due. This is all on Shanahan. He started building the culture of playing for the team in the sweater with an old-school core of Lou and Babs, then completely undermined it, handing the keys to an unproven, quote, player's first tandem in Dubas and Keefe. Uh, that's the part I don't disagree with. He tried to be too cute with a two-phase plan, and now Toronto is on a decline with the Islanders going deep into the playoffs, Tim and Hamilton. Now, show. I'll let you respond. I This is the point I keep trying to drive home about the, the Lou Lamorello, Kyle Dubas conundrum for lack of a better term. I think Lou Lamorello is obviously a tremendously skilled general manager who knows exactly what he's doing. Sure. I think Lou Lamorello negotiating salaries in a before a flat cap world for big money players would not have gone very well in this market. I think putting together the team he put together in Long Island with Komarovs and Matt Martins and all that that type of, and the Adam Pellicks getting eight-year deals, that is a completely different skill set. That is, to, that is to penalty killing what playing on the power play is, which is what Kyle Dubas has to do here with the Leafs. You can absolutely, you know, criticize him for some of those deals. Absolutely. But to just live in this fantasy world that I think some people live in, that says, well, Lou Lamorello would have came in, everybody would have taken their eight years for $8 million, and that would have been the end of it. I just, I can't live in that fantasy world. I can't tell you with certainty that it wouldn't have happened, but I think so many people live have this fan fiction written out of Lou Lamorello would sit Austin Matthews down in the chair, and it'd be like the old police movie with the light swinging in his face and saying, sign the contract. And I just don't think that's the way it would have gone here. Yeah, I don't think so either. Like, I, don't get me wrong. I, I do. I, I did appreciate what Lou did by and large, but Lou also signed Patrick Marlowe to a contract. Dubas had to unload a first pick to get rid of. Mm-hmm. He, he signed Nikita Zaitsev to that awful, awful deal that was probably going to, you know, handicap them for, for years and years. I mean, you look at the... I, like I honestly mentioned a couple of the deals that Lamoriello has signed with the Islanders. I, I admit I, I certainly don't follow the Islanders as much as I follow the Leafs, but I, I don't think any of the massive deals or draft picks or players that have been brought into the Islanders since Lou went there were signed by him, right? Like the Anders Lee, uh, Brock Nelson, Matt Barzal, yeah. Jordan Eberle, Josh Bailey, I want to say, 
I I think Sebastian Aho too. Like I think, or, uh, yeah, Adam Pellick and so on. Like I think a lot of those guys were signed by Garth Snow. Like I want to say the biggest deals that Lewis signed during his tenure as a GM, like like in terms of money, is probably the goaltenders like Varlamov. Yep. I want to say maybe Schneider, and I think the only other one that comes to mind is the Pajot deal, right? And I think like by like if that is true, I could be completely off off base on some of those things, but if that's true, like I just don't think that it's it's really comparable only because we haven't seen how Lou has handled a, a contract for a player the caliber of essentially any of Nylander, Tavares, Matthews, or Marner. And, and again, it's, it's, it's maybe it's a little unfair because how many of those players even exist in the first place? Not too many. So it's, I just think it's like an apples and oranges conversation. Like, sure, what, what, would it be interesting to have that, like, thought experiment? Yeah, sure, it's because of what we're doing. But at the same time, I just I can't in good conscience say, yeah, sure, Lou would have done a better job than Dubas because he, just, he hasn't really done that at least since, unless you want to go way back since before when he was with the Devils and so on. Yeah, the one the one big guy who got signed in the cap system was Barzal, but it was a bridge deal, right. three three times seven, so for twenty one million, and it happened in a flat cap world, and it happened where he had one of those deals to negotiate. So again, I I'm not saying it is a completely ridiculous claim to make, but you got to be happy with no John Tavares, you got to be happy with Nikita Zaitsev, Komarov's probably here, and so is Matt Martin. If that makes you happy, then okay, I guess you wanted Lou, but I I'm okay uh, with the bed I'm laying in right now. That's Show Ali. I'm Brent Gunning. Going to dive in to Major League Baseball. Mm, World Series is set. I got to be honest. Hate the matchup. So we're going <laughs> to see if R.J. Anderson can talk me into it. He'll do that next. So we continue here on Sportsnet Today. This is Sportsnet Today on Sportsnet 590 The Fan. <laughs> Final hour, Sportsnet today, Brent Gunning, show Ali alongside me. We're going to do our best to keep the, 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 the car on the tracks here. We're, we're approaching the witching hour of, the, of an NFL Sunday, and our text line is absolutely blowing up. There's a lot going on. Oh, also the World Series, it's about to get started. RJ Anderson, MLB writer with CBS Sports, joins us now to get you set for the World Series. RJ, how you doing this morning, or this morning, this afternoon? How are we doing? I'm doing well. How about yourself? Well, I, I, okay, I'm going to be honest. You know, we're all friends here, or at least we are for the next 20 minutes or so. I, uh, I didn't get the, the World Series matchup I wanted. I wanted a Red Sox-Dodgers <laughs> World Series. I wanted the Mookie Betts Bowl. Now the Braves are here and Acuna's not playing. Sell me on this World Series of cheaters versus the Braves. You mean you don't like the Shane Reynolds Bowl? Um, <laughs> no, yeah. no, not the same. <laughs> It's a pretty interesting matchup. Definitely not the one that I think a lot of us anticipated, even heading into the league championship series round. Uh, but, you know, to sell you on it, I mean, one thing, we're probably going to have an unexpected World Series champion. We're going to see some potentially interesting pitching matchups, especially right out of the gate with Charlie Morton and Framber Valdez. And, you know, there's some good players on both sides. Uh, obviously, the Astros have been here, done that before. But the Braves, you know, this is the chance for Freddie Freeman, Ozzie Albies, and their collection of role players to cement their legacy. So, RJ, you know, one guy who, of course, I'm sure the uh, Toronto Sports Radio sphere will be talking about tomorrow as well will be Alex Anthopoulos, who, of course, was uh, the former GM here. And we all know the kind of moves Anthopoulos made when he was the GM in Toronto. He really went for it. 
And, uh, you know, now he did the same thing for the Braves, and the Braves are now in the World Series as a result. Eddie Rosario, just from uh, living on another planet in the uh, in the AL or in the NLCS, pardon me. And, uh, you know, other moves they made, you know, Jock Peterson, Jorge Soler, Adam Duvall as well. A lot of great moves that Alex Anthopoulos has made. I just feel like I, I know the uh, the GM of the year stuff, that can, those kind of awards are decided before the playoffs started. So it's probably going to go to Zaidi in, in San Francisco. But, I, boy, if you, had, if you had told me the playoff – the, like the playoffs were included in that voting period, and it would probably unanimously go to Alex Anthopoulos, I, would, I bet. Yeah, he made some interesting moves at the deadline. You know, no big splashes, but he went out there and basically assembled a new outfield, and he had to do that in order to give his team any chance of being competitive down the stretch. And look, did he expect it to play out as well as it has? Almost absolutely not. You know, those were, you know, they were, I wouldn't want to say half measure, but they kind of were half measure moves. You know, there was no reasonable explanation for what's happened since like with Rosario and Peterson having these big postseason moments but at the same time you know he gave his team a chance and sometimes it's all it takes so you know to his credit he now has a chance to win a World Series and I believe that would give him one more ring than Mark Shapiro for anyone keeping track at home oh no one no one in in this city would (laughs) dare do such a thing although I will say uh, the way things went the past, uh, well, maybe not September, but the way things went uh, throughout the season, uh, that the, the, the people have started to change their tune uh, just a little bit of that. Boy, uh, you know, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. turning himself into an MVP candidate. It's amazing what that uh, what that can change. Uh, maybe I'll get your thoughts on the local team, but I, I do want to stick with the I do want to stick with the World Series. You know, it seems to me, and we say this about every sport of oh, it's copycat league. Every league's a copycat league. Somebody wins, you figure out what they did, and you try to you know emblema- emblem it as, as best you can. What is going to be the lesson that the teams take out of this postseason? You know, it felt like a few years back, the lesson, or even even the last year when the Dodgers won, you could take the lesson that you need these these fireballers coming out of your pen. You need four, five, six guys who throw, you know, 96, 97, 98. What do you think the lesson teams are going to take out of these two teams being in the World Series that they try to take and, and put on their own teams? Yeah, I actually wonder if we're not going to see a continuation of the bullpen fetish because – this has been a postseason of bullpens, right? It doesn't seem like anyone's starting rotation has actually uh, pitched as well as they would like them to. And, you know, maybe this is part of, you know, having a 162-game season after the pandemic-shortened year last year. Maybe guys are just more tired than usual, and as a result, you know, their performance is suffering. But I do think teams are going to look and say, okay, we probably do need to have more bullpen depth than maybe we even assumed, and that would be my guess, because otherwise, you know, you're just looking around, and there's only so many options. I guess you could say having an older manager, but, like, you know, teams are still hiring these whiz kids, 40-something year olds who are a few years removed from their playing career, so I don't think anyone's going to go seeking out their own Brian Snicker or Dusty Baker. I think it's probably going to be, you know, the bullpen depth area. Yeah, I would probably agree with that too, right? So you look at... I mean, I think Dusty Baker will be the second oldest manager to, to, to manage in a World Series, which is pretty remarkable. And it's funny, when it comes to Dusty Baker, I mean, we all know the reason he was hired in Houston. He's like one of the most well-liked, well-respected guys in all of baseball. And he was hired to basically cover up the uh, the, the still-existing stench of the Astros cheating scandal. I, I want to say it was like in January or February of 2020. And it's funny because at the end of the day, it, you know, he's not exactly the rally the troops, uh, rah-rah kind of general or uh, kind of manager. But he is the, the very well-respected guy, like we're saying. And 
while this the, the way Dusty Baker does does uh, manage the things with with the Houston Astros is like you know a marriage of convenience, I guess it will be really cool if he does win. I know people will or will not be pleased to see uh, to see the Astros win. I gotta say, my the thing I'm most looking forward to if the Astros win will be to see Dusty Baker get that World Series ring because it feels like yeah. the only thing that's missing from his resume in, in terms of putting him into Cooperstown is probably that World Series ring. Maybe you can make the argument for for him without it, but still the 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 ring would solidify it for. For me, at least. Yeah, I think he should be in the Hall of Fame regardless. I mean, he's the only manager to ever make the playoffs of five different teams. He had more than 2,000 hits as a player, has more than 2,000 wins as a manager. You know, it's just a very interesting, unique profile. And I do agree, you know, he's kind of placed in the glass, a glass flip situation where, you know, there was no success guaranteed. He was kind of, as you said, a PR shield for them because everyone loves Dusty Baker. And, well, there you go, you know, take the flame and, you know, he really stuck up for the players left and right. That's what he does. Um, you know, you saw how many times he kind of turned the heat off of those players, even though everyone wanted to boo them. And, of course, the pandemic helped with that, too. You know, having a season without fans certainly helped. But, yeah, I think Dusty Baker is responsible for cooling the temperature there. And win or lose, you know, I think he should be in the Hall of Fame. But here's the question. If they lose, will they bring him back? Because, remember, his contract expires at the end of the postseason. They haven't gotten an extension done yet. It's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Well, and I wonder how much of that plays into the fact that, you know, a guy who's at the kind of centerpiece of that team in, in Correa, there's there's far from a guarantee that he's going to be back as well. Does it feel to you like there's any world where maybe if Correa's back and you're keeping this thing going, then yeah, okay, let's have Dusty Baker back. But if it's not the case and you're going to be taking a half step back, maybe it's time to kind of almost start anew? Yeah, it's possible. I mean, I'm not sure Correa's coming back at all. I think they kind of you know, peeved him a little bit in the spring. I remember he came out and said something like, you know, they don't believe in long-term contracts. And he's talking about James Click, who is the general manager who plays Jeff Lou now. You know, he comes from Tampa Bay, and, you know, he's not someone I would hire if I'm expecting to spend a lot of money. So, you know, maybe maybe the writing's on the wall there, and maybe Correa's on his way out. Maybe they're starting to envision a future where they move on from parts of this core, you know, main parts of this core, uh, you know, George Springer, of course, off the left last winter. So they've shown a willingness to walk away. So we'll see. It's going to be interesting to see where that franchise goes. And, you know, all eyes are going to be on them for reasons other than this World Series heading forward. So, RJ, you know, you mentioned the uh, pitching matchup we're likely going to see in game one on Tuesday, which is, uh, I believe it is Framber Valdez, uh, Charlie Morton, which I think is what you said. And, um, you yeah. know, look, looking beyond those guys, look, certainly Luis Garcia pitched exquisitely after the first two kind of rough starts. And after the first after the first start in the uh, ALCS, you know, he had the knee injury and then he came back and was very, very good to, to end things off. And then, you know, on the other side of things, the uh, the, the Braves have Ian Anderson and Max Freed. So beyond the, the top dogs, how do you think the rest of the like, I guess maybe a better way of asking you would be who does it favor the starting rotations being the way they are? For me, it's the Braves. You know, there's uncertainty with that Houston rotation. I'm guessing Lance McCullough Jr. won't be available unless there's kind of a miraculous healing situation there. So you're talking about Houston probably trotting out a rotation of Valdez, Urquidy, Garcia, and Jake Odorizzi. And then on Atlanta side, you're, you know, you mentioned them already, but you add in whoever that fourth starter is going to be, whether it's Juice Smiley or, you know, some of our off-the-board option here. I think, you know, Atlanta has the – the edge there. You know, Garcia, for instance, is pretty uh, susceptible to left-hand hitters. And, well, you look at that Braves lineup, who's been doing the damage for him. It's been Freeman, Peterson, and Rosario were lefties, and also Ozzie Albies is a switch hitter. So he'll be taking left-hand cuts against Garcia. So on paper, I would prefer the Braves rotation 
assuming McCullers is out for this series. Yeah, it does feel like McCullers could could kind of tip this thing one one way or another, and uh, we'll see when it gets going in uh, just a couple of days. Uh, R.J. Anderson, thank you so much for joining us today, uh, writer for CBS Sports. Thanks for the time, man. Thank you for having me, and stay safe, everybody. Stay safe. There he goes, R.J. Anderson. Charlie Morton better stay safe if he wants to make it through five innings. He's he's freed himself from the shackles of Tampa, but who knows what's going on uh, with the way baseball Charlie is Morton, like, today. Gunner, Charlie Morton has is now will be going to his, I think it is his, third world series in the last five years so he went he was with houston in 2017 he obviously went with the uh with the rays last year and now he's going with the the braves like what a ring chaser what a ring chaser charlie Horton is no i'm kidding he's great he's been out he's been ridiculously good for someone who is like i don't want to say journeyman but who has been you know he's in the, he's in the back nine of his career to borrow a, a golf a golf reference from you which you know I love. And yeah, just anytime anytime a team can decline an option on a player and then that player ends up in the World Series the next yeah. year, one, very lucky, and two, it's it's got to feel so good to just puff your chest out there. And yeah, Char- Charlie Morton trying to turn himself into the, uh, the Pat Maroon of Major League Baseball. But, you know, Pat Maroon only wins. He doesn't just show up and lose uh, when, when it matters most. So we'll see what happens. Uh, you know, if, if, I, if I'm asking you, I assume you would like to see the Braves uh, get it done as opposed to those dirty, nefarious cheaters. Astros, you know what? I actually would prefer mm. to see the Astros win, and I'll here's why. A couple of weeks ago, I hosted Sportsnet Tonight with George, George Russick. Okay, and heard I, of him. I, I said, yeah, heard of him. yeah, yeah, he's a familiar to us in some vague capacity. <laughs> no, I, I said to Russick that he asked me if I ever thought Alex Anthopoulos would win a World Series as uh, general manager of the Braves. <laughs> I said unequivocally, he would never ever win not even just this year ever with the Braves he'll never ever win and uh, yes as we know um the the shelf life on those kind of takes on sports talk radio is uh is longer than I think any of us care to admit and and here we are Adopolis just four wins away from being uh get, you know getting that that elusive win as the general manager of the Braves so just to be just to preserve my own take I don't care if it, it takes until with two outs in the last strike in the final game of the World Series if the Astros win I'm safe for one more year, I'm safe. But I, I, I also genuinely, as we asked uh, RJ, I genuinely would not mind seeing Dusty Baker win a World Series because he is, like, he he's got to be the most liked guy in baseball. He's got to be. Yeah, he he's definitely right up there. I mean, it's just he's been he's been such a part through so many kind of through lines of the game. I mean, however you feel about the guy, he managed Bonds. He played on a team with Hank Aaron. Yeah, his son almost got killed in a World Series game at home plate, and JC JT Snow say, saved the kid's life basically. Like there have just been so many touchstone moments of the sport that he's been a part of. It, it feels borderline criminal. That he doesn't have one. So, yeah, you would love to love to see him get it done. I just wish there was a way we could, like, reward him. You're you're a movie guy. They do, like, the, the <laughs> Lifetime Achievement Award. Right. I wish we could just do that instead of having him be the kind of positive veneer on this this dirty, cheating Astros team. But, but yes, I would not be upset at all. And then I guess Acuna's stat is still a little up in the air, but the idea of a Ewing Theory team, a team getting it done without their best guy, uh, that is always, always, always appealing to me. So uh, either way, I'd like to see it. But I'm just I'm upset we didn't get Mookie Betts in the World Series. That guy's my favorite baseball player. I love watching him play. And uh, it's, it's, it's criminal to me that, that he's not going to be playing for a ring because if Feels like he always is doing that. Well, he just won. He just won yeah, last cool. year. He just won. I know, but but he's the best. He should win every year. It's <laughs> yeah, okay, fair, fair enough. This yeah. is the running joke. I mean, uh, you hear me all the time. Mike Trout's the best player in the game. Okay, <laughs> that's fine. Like he can have that. Mookie's just going to have all the jewelry. If that's okay with you, right. I, I'd rather have jewelry than people telling me uh, I, how, how. I have good to say, 
I I really do like Mookie a lot more now that he is no longer a member of the Boston Red Sox. I I, I know that I know that you have a soft spot for the Red Sox. Mm-hmm. I, I, I kind of forgot about that honestly until you said everybody does. <laughs> until everybody you said does, that. Yeah. But uh, I I uh, I genuinely like I gotta say Alex Cora pulling essentially or like let's say pulling levers, pushing buttons, whatever you want to say, basically making every single possible wrong decision he could make after game three of the of the ALCS was just ooh ooh just just inject that into my veins Brett oh baby that was terrific and the <laughs> Astros the Astros may be dirty cheaters but Alex Cora was just there so I don't yeah, know my goodness. I, don't, I don't know what you're what you're kind of getting at uh 590 590 is the text <laughs> line please include your name and location and yeah you you outed me for it uh maybe maybe more than a soft spot and we'll uh we'll we'll leave it there uh, you can head to my Instagram if you want to really suss that out uh in terms of uh in terms of the text line 590 590 please include your name and location want to hear from you guys in terms of your just kind of frustration for the Leafs where are you at uh I uh I touched a nerve with the idea of Lou Lamorello maybe Apparently. not being the guy here. Yeah. Uh, that's that's what's happened on the text line. I'll, I'll jump in, start reading some. Patrick from Saskatoon. If Lou would have stayed with the Leafs, the biggest thing that would have happened is Tavares would not have come to Toronto. Agreed. Agreed. And now some people will say, I'm not one of them, some people will say you'd be better off without having that $11 million spent on, on your second line center, but I still think you needed to get that guy here. Uh, somebody else texting in. On the other side of this issue, uh, this team has no identity that's something Lou would never have. I I assume he means would never accept the team would have an identity. I think there's something to that. I think there would be a more concerted effort to be a a grindier, a pluckier, a lower event team. I think that is a fair, this this fan fiction of what everybody would assign for and everything, I I can't get too preoccupied with that. But I do think there's something to the idea that the the way they look at it is very different and Lou's teams would have a different identity than the Leafs under Kyle Dubas. So that one was from uh, Michael in Etobicoke, and he also said, because he had texted that in when we were talking about the idea, like, what would Lou do if, you know, with, with the Martyr Matthews Nylander contracts? What would, what would he have done had he been the GM? Um, and Michael from Etobicoke, he had also texted in to say, you guys are missing the point. The, this team would have a lot more grit than what they have today. And that's, like, that's probably true. But I, I, at the same time, I don't really know. Like, if that if that is true, right, I don't know how much more that would help at this point. Maybe it would have helped like in years, maybe like before last year it would have helped. But last year and this year's team, I would argue has plenty of grit. They're just not really, they have plenty of skill. And I, I feel like it's a relatively decent balance of all the things you want. You see, you see guys going into the corner and digging out pucks. We talk about making the team quote unquote harder to play against. Bunching and, and so on have done that. The Richie experiment so far has not been great, but still like the team is harder to play against. I just, I don't think that Lou would have, maybe, I feel maybe he would have maybe even overcorrected too much towards the like, grit and sandpaper type of stuff. Yeah, you you would. There is no doubt about it. There would be guys here who are quote-unquote harder to play for. Uncle Leo, Leo Komarov would still be here. Matt Martin would still be here. John Tavares wouldn't be, so your second-line center is probably Nazem Kadri. Nazem Kadri is a grittier player than John Tavares. He also got himself suspended every postseason that's ever mattered for this team that he's played in. So, I don't know, six six of one, a half dozen of the other. I think there's some world where it's grittier, but I still don't know that that's better. And I think the thing that frustrates the Michael and Etobicos of the world who want to see more grit is it doesn't matter if David Camp's kind of gritty or Cash is kind of gritty or Wayne Simmons is slashing ankles when they're down 7-1. That doesn't matter. 
You need Mitch Marner to be grittier. You need Austin Matthews to be pluckier and grindier. And you need it from William Nylander, although I think that aspect of his game specifically has grown with leaps and bounds. And I think that's where it's frustrating for people is you can put grit or toughness or whatever term you want to use for it. Brian Burke had a whole bunch of them up and down the lineup. But unless your core kind of embodies that, the team isn't going to be that. Now, I don't think Austin Matthews needs to have a snarl and go in there trying to win every, every, every physical battle he encounters. I think he should, but I don't think that's the reason he's going to be an elite player. But I think that's where the frustration comes is when you see the Islanders teams, the guys who are wearing the letters, the guys who are at the forefront of it, that is what they have. That's, that's kind of all they do. And this Leafs team, they have plenty of it, like you mentioned. But the 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 hard, the skeleton of the team, it's still kind of lacking at times there. Well, when it comes to Matthews too, right? I mean, he's a big boy. He's a like a human as a human being. He's a massive guy, right? And I think, and again, like you said, I don't think I don't think we necessarily need to be always advocating for. Sorry, show show. Let me just jump in. Yeah, you know ahead. what it all goes back to with Matthews. Okay, it, one moment that I think distills how you feel about this team and how you feel about that guy and how much this is something that just is a fact of, of you know, a fact about who they are versus a fatal flaw. We go back to, I want to say it was in the second game against Montreal and someone grabs him oh, in yeah. a scrum behind yeah. and he is laughing and he's laughing. And at the time I said, that's great. I like that he's not getting sucked into these stupid games. Yeah. And then they lost the series. And I didn't feel very good about it after. So I think that one moment is kind of a perfect distillation of what you're talking about for that guy. Yeah, exactly. Right. Because, because you want, I think, I would imagine for your star player, you want to see him do like just a little bit more than everybody else because he's, your, he's the star player, right? Like that's the, like because he is, if he, I think he is, he is asked, there's more asked of him because he is Austin Matthews, then would be asked of, I would say virtually anyone else, maybe outside of Mitch Marner, right? And and also because of the different kinds of like physical kinds of kinds of players they are in terms of their body types and so on. And like you said, like when the, when he was getting ragdolled or whatever, and he was like grinning at the at the cameras, basically, I I thought that was great. I thought in my head I was like, oh boy, Austin Matthews is a maniac. This is exactly what this team needs. And then like you said, it didn't really reflect in the rest of the games in the playoffs. And who who knows if that happens more this year? It could very well, but it also may it may not, and it may never be a part of his game. It's just that's something I personally would like to see more of. As the season goes on, and again, it's a young season. I don't want to necessarily say the it's early thing because I don't know. It, it, some there are some trends that are troubling that I would like to see completely go go away as soon as tomorrow um, against the uh, against the Canes. But at the same time, yeah, I just that that's all I really mean when it comes to Austin Matthews and the way he plays. Yeah, I, and I think that that's that's kind of where a lot of people fall on it. This is a guy who's so big and so strong, he can be physically dominant, but at the end of the day, he's important to this team because he's the only guy on it capable of popping 60 in a year. And that's probably not going to happen this year because we're six games into the season and he doesn't have one. I know he hasn't played six yet, but hey, they only give you 82, whether you you start on time uh, or, or not. So I think that that's the thing that I don't need to see from him in terms of I don't need him to be Wayne Simmons. But I wouldn't mind the old, you know, cross check in front of the net after the whistle and stand there being your six foot three, 225 pound self, just standing there and not moving and being a little bit more of a dominant force. Uh, one more I want to, I want to get in here because I think that this is a common threat that's made. I don't know how often it's actually followed through on Daryl from Toronto. 
must hurt all you Leaf fans when the Oilers are doing so well and Hyman popping at all those goals the way things have started. I'm so glad I jumped ship after the Montreal series. Next up, Anderson, they, the way he was treated at the end, he's out for a shutout tomorrow. <laughs> now, first Probably. things first, I wholeheartedly agree that this will be an abject disaster. And even if the Leafs play amazing and they pop 60 shots, all from high danger scoring chances, Freddie's going to find a way and he's going to have a big, big game tomorrow. And I should remind you, we'll have the game for you right here on Sportsnet 590 The Fan and the Leafs Radio Network. Gord Stelicum, he'll have you covered for intermissions and postgame. Good plug. Very good plug. I, I can't understand this idea of I jump ship. We've all said the thing of I'm never doing it again with this team. And then you know what happens? Then the puck drops in September and I'm all the way back. I just, good for you, I guess, Daryl in Toronto, if you're able to free yourself of this, I don't know, psychological torture for, for lack of a better term. But uh, there, were, there were a lot of people threatening it. And I guess Daryl actually followed through last year. Yeah, you know what? I got to say, that is, I, I'm not going to roast the guy. That is impressive. Because for a lot of people... I also don't believe it, though. You know, yeah, like, like in, in the sense that if they do, if they are good again or they do make the playoffs and do make it to the next round, you think Daryl will be back is what you're saying. A thousand percent. Okay, There's yeah. no world where this is a team in the second <laughs> round after Matthews has ripped off six goals in a five-game series win that Daryl's going, uh, no, I made my decision, and I'm just going to sit on my hands. He'll be all the way back. But but enjoy your regular season. I'm sure it'll be less stressful for you. Well, when I, I just like when it comes to like the way, and this is like a completely, has nothing really to do specifically with the Leafs, but just like the way people tie their identities to sports franchises, like you and I have done it, God, Lord knows we have done it for for basically every team in the in the GTA, if not and a couple other ones as well, right? It just that it, be, to be able to, like you said, you know, unextricate or whatever that word may be, inextricate yourself uh, from uh, from from the mess, psychological mess that is uh, people's identities and sports teams. I gotta say that's impressive. Yeah, again, I don't know if I entirely believe it because I think it's impossible, but it's also very impressive. Yeah, it's also, this is also like week one into going to the gym and on a diet, right? Maybe don't tell everybody (laughs) until you've been doing it for six months and there's actually some results to show and you uh, can stick with it. But good on you. Thanks so much to all the texters. Keep them coming. I'd love to sneak in a few more before the show's done. 590-590, please include your name and location. Up next, joining us, co-host, Staff and Graph Podcast, Rachel Dory, going to get her thoughts on the Leafs. Does this team more need more internal accountability? How do you fix it? Just how much is it broken? We're only six games into the season, and listen to me. Brent Gutting and Show Ali with you here, but another half hour left in the program on Sportsnet today. Sportsnet 590. 590, the fan. Sportsnet today, Brent Gunning, show Ali alongside me here, wrapping up the show with what else? Leafs Talk 590-590 is the text line. Get your text in. Want to hear from you before the show is done. Of course, Leafs will be back at it tomorrow on the road in Carolina. You can listen to that game right here on Sportsnet 590. The fan, myself and Gord Stelk, will have you covered for the intermissions pre and post as well. But joining us now, co-host of the Staff and Graph podcast, Rachel Dory. Rachel, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you guys doing? 
Oh, you know, I've I've been I've been better after hockey night in Canada's. I I could say that I've I've enjoyed my Saturday nights more in the, in the past. But but thrilled to have you on uh, to talk today. You know, I think I think the thing that has been kind of bandied about, and you know, you you tweeted about this yesterday, is is just how much accountability is needed from this team. You know, with the way we think about sports psychology today and wanting to have belief in yourself, I think there are a lot of times where you don't want to be outwardly critical of yourself. At least that's the the kind of mindset that that a lot of people take. But you know, I saw you tweeting critically about the the kind of lack of accountability that this this team had taken, especially following that seven one thumping in Pittsburgh. Yeah, and honestly, I look at it and uh, Manchester United lost at home today to Liverpool, and they got they didn't just lose; they got embarrassed five nil. And you look at their captain comes out after the game and. He's, even before he started his press conference, he just said, like, he cut it off right away, and he said, I just need to start by apologizing to the fans that it's completely unacceptable. It is inexcusable. We've got to be better. I have to be better. And so right there, he doesn't even give the reporters a chance. He steps right to the microphone and says, this is unacceptable. We will not tolerate it. I have to be better. The team has to be better. Everybody has to be better. This is... If you think about it, Manchester United is as big in soccer as the Leafs are in hockey. Obviously, globally, United is a bigger team because of soccer. But I look at that and then I compare it to what I see from the Leafs and it's there's no reason to be concerned or we're getting scoring chances. Things will start to go in. Well, they're not going in and it is not good enough. And so the only way you're going to get better is if you actually take accountability. And I'm not even convinced they're taking accountability privately, with the exception of probably Sheldon Keith, who has said some public things. But, I mean, you can just tell in how they're answering questions. I just, I really am not convinced that they're taking accountability privately, and they're certainly not taking it publicly. So I guess the question is then, and I, I agree with most of that. I mean, I think there's some guys kind of trying to, and I don't necessarily mean this as a knock on Tavares, although I guess it kind of is one. You know, I've joked that Jake Muzzin's the real captain of this team for, for a while. It seems like the team kind of takes their cues from him. And sure enough, after last night, he's the guy who comes out and calls out the effort of the entire team. It's inexcusable, but that's just one guy. And I guess the question is, is how do you fix that? You know, Sheldon Keefe has been, I think, wrongly painted as this kindergarten teacher who, wants everybody doing finger painting and oh let's all buddy up and have fun this is a drill this is a bit of a drill sergeant as a coach we saw that in the all for nothing and you know I don't think it's coming from a lack of urgency from him and I guess my question is just how do you go about fixing that in the group then if you have a coach who who is not letting it slide um so I think you're right with Jake Muzzin I think Tavares is an underrated leader um very much like Jonathan Taves and how he does things and we all nobody really questions Jonathan Taves leadership um I think Tavares does take accountability um but to me I think putting letters on Marner and Matthews jerseys as early as they did was a bit of a mistake in my eyes I think if you really look at it, you can clearly tell that Jason Spezza is a leader on this team. You can tell that Jake Muzzin is a leader on this team. You could tell last season that Zach Hyman was a leader on this team. And you could tell because the way they played and the way they operated was contagious among the team. The way that Marner and Matthews operate is not necessarily contagious among the team. And when it is contagious, it's not a good thing. And so I think for me, I'm more questioning the decision. To, just because they're your best players does not have to mean 
that they're the guys with the letters, right? Jonathan Taves is not the best player in Chicago. That mantra belongs to Patrick Kane, right? And you look at it, and I, to me, the, the leadership from the core is, is not good enough from that perspective. I look at it, I see a, a leader in Morgan Riley. I actually have seen quite a few leadership qualities in William Nylander that I really like in terms of how he's playing. And I don't think William Nylander, frankly, is getting enough credit for how good he's been. Yeah, I think Nylander, Rachel, has been... I've said this a couple times over the last you know couple of days since the season started, basically, but that Nylander certainly feels like he has essentially picked up where he left off in the playoffs last year against Montreal. But not only that, like this year, we always talk about, and, and Gunning and I have talked about this a lot today, the idea that you want to make the Leafs harder to play against. Well, you know what? Nylander has, maybe not every single time out, but he has gone out there and been, you know, digging pucks out and, and being more physical, which is exactly the kind of thing you want to see. Maybe, again, not on every play you want, but you want to see on that, you want to see that kind of thing more from Matthews and, and Marner. But you are actually seeing it from Nylander, which I got to say has been one of the lone bright spots so far this year yeah I've been you can't really say you've been impressed with anybody on the least thus <laughs> yeah. far with the exception of Michael Bunting Jason Spezza and probably William Nylander to be fair I personally think Jake Muzzin's playing banged up and I'm not sure why we would be doing that five games into the season that would seem very silly to me if that's the case but when you look at it, Michael Bunting never cheats you for effort. Jason Spezza, I think, would literally die for this hockey club. Um, and you look at William Elander for all the criticisms he took early in his career and the criticisms that came with the contract. I mean, I'm not even willing to engage in a discussion around trading William Nylander, William Nylander not living up to his contract, any of that, because I think he's probably the best bang for his buck on this hockey team right now. And... I mean, the Leafs would be in a much better place if the rest of the core up to the standard that William Nylander is playing up to right now. And so, to me, William Nylander is probably the most untouchable asset on this team from a core perspective. Because he, in terms of, when you look at the cap situation, obviously you're probably not going to be training Matthews, so you can strike him off the list. When you look at how the cap is structured with the lease, you need someone who's making under $7 million a year to be producing at the clip that Nylander is. And so I'd be looking to give him more opportunity before I gave opportunity to anybody else. Yeah, it's almost like the conversation around Marner and Nylander, and I think this is fair, has completely flipped to where it was, I don't know, 18 months ago or when those deals were first signed. It is it is Marner catching, because I, I, I think most people have rightfully so come around on William Nylander, and the playoff absolutely pulled a lot of people you know, to, to his kind of side of things, for, for lack of a better term, but he's just become one of their more consistent players and a guy you kind of know what you're getting from, which was not what a lot of people, although I... I was I was there early. You know, you mentioned Jake Muzzin and him being banged up. I, I agree there has to be something wrong there because, you know, it's one thing for a player like him to be a little slow of foot, uh, you know, have a little trouble with foot speed. Okay, that that's fine. But the just decision-making hasn't been there. There have been giveaways that are just completely uncharacteristic to him. And the fact that, that he can't get a day off, it just doesn't make any sense because if there's one thing this team has, it's, it's left shot D. And Rasmus Sandin has been a guy who has been clamoring 
clamoring to get a little more rope, a little more chance. And it just feels to me like it's it's easy as can be. You, you bump Sandine up, then you have Dermot and Lilligren as your as your third pair and, and give Muzzin the time he needs because this team needs him healthy in the long run. And if he's dealing with anything now, it just feels like absolutely give him a blow. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think on a back-to-back with travel uh, was a perfect opportunity to do it. Just on Nylander, um, the difference between Nylander and the other uh, three is if you look at it, Nylander held out, got the contract that everyone maybe thought was a little risk at the time, but he has lived up to every penny of that contract. So you can't really be angry about it. John Tavares had offers of $2 million more per year but he took less to come to Toronto. He can't really be angry about that because he would have gotten more on the market. Austin Matthews signed what is a completely fair value deal. So you can't be angry about that. So now we're left with Mitch Marner. And frankly, he made a huge stink about it. His agent was wildly yelling and screaming in the media. And he signed this bloated contract. So he's the only one that hasn't signed for less and hasn't lived up to expectations. He is rightfully taking the heat. If you want to hold out in Toronto and cause that kind of nonsense, then you had better live up to your contract. And he hasn't, and that's why the, the script is kind of flipped here on him and Nylander. But on Jake Muzzin, I would say, especially on a back-to-back, I mean, the guy is getting older, too. There's, there's no reason that if he's banged up, you shouldn't be playing Travis Dermott and Rasmus Sandin. They are completely capable defensemen, and then, you just have T.J. Brody and Morgan Riley take the, the lion's share of the matchup, and they might have to play 25 minutes to do that. But at the end of the day, you want to give Rasmus Sandin that opportunity to show he can be a top-four defenseman. This is a really important year for him. And so if Jake Muzzin's got to come out of the lineup for a couple of games or whatever the case may be, then it's a perfect opportunity to see what you have in Rasmus Sandin. And if that is the case, I... I don't understand why it's not being done. And yeah, like you mentioned, Rachel, the the Muzzin Hall pairing was was awful last night. And if he is, if Muzzin is playing through something, yeah, I think uh, that would maybe explain some things, if not all things. But certainly, yeah, they're like I mean, they're supposed to be a shutdown unit, and they're essentially the opposite of that. I know one one goal went in off the Muzzin skate, so I mean, you know, how much can you really control that? But at the same time, well, the yeah. other thing. The other thing is, and I think a lot of people are starting to realize this, but it's not as big as it potentially people understand it to be. Justin Hall is propped up by Jake Muzzin, right? If you put Justin Hall with a regular bottom-pairing defenseman, he's a bottom-pairing defenseman. Jake Muzzin is that good. So when Jake Muzzin is playing hurt naturally as a player, you're going to have more giveaways because you're afraid to take contact because obviously that hurts. And so you're more propensity, you're, you have a higher propensity for giveaways. You are playing afraid. You're not as physical. And when Muzzin's play falters, so does Hall's because Hall is not capable of picking up the slack when Jake Muzzin is hurt the way that Muzzin brings up Hall when he is healthy. And so as Jake Muzzin falters, so will Justin Hall, which leaves you with two defensemen as opposed to four. And that is a problem. Well, as we've been talking about the defenseman, I'm curious. You mentioned him a couple of times, Rasmus Sandin, and I mean they were they weren't on the ice, just generally speaking, all that much. I'm just curious of what you've made of of Sandin's play so far this year, because I think like whenever you look at Sandin, I feel like a lot of people look at him and say, "Oh, okay, well he could be the future of this decor." I just wonder what you've seen uh, through the first you know five six games here from Sandin that you liked and disliked. 
Yeah, so I thought the first three or four games, she was Toronto's best defenseman, and I don't think it was very close either. I I thought he had a bang-up start to the year. He's really impressive. The way he's moving the puck, he looks a little bit quicker on his feet. His gap has been a lot better, and, and those are things that tell me that he's more comfortable at the NHL level. When you're uncomfortable at the NHL level, your gap is horrendous. Your breakout passes are awful, and so to see that, that tells me he's, he's a little bit more comfortable at the NHL level. I think the last couple games he hasn't obviously been great, but the team has been horrendous. So it's not exactly fair to Rasmus Sandin to, to evaluate him when everyone around him, like, no one can accept a pass. No one can hit the net with a shot. No one can even be in the right spot on a breakout. So it's, it's pretty hard to fault him. Um, for anything in the last couple games, but I actually thought that um, he had a really good start to the year. I'd like to see him get more power play time just because I really liked his decision-making and his confidence with the puck. Uh, so for me, he got to continue. I would like to see him be a little bit more physical um, because I know he's got that element to his game. But it's pretty hard to be upset with what we've seen from Rasmus Sandin to start the year, especially given what he's had to play with around him yeah i'm i'm very high on the sandman and you you mentioned him being more physical we see that creep into his game from time to time he likes to throw the uh like like his beloved countryman peter forsberg loves to throw the reverse hit there and and i love to see it and i i just think that that's going to be the most interesting or one of the most interesting questions for this team and you know maybe it is with a banged up jake muzzin uh, you know that helps solve the problem but how do you give him more responsibility without taking away you know the effectiveness of the top four that you built I think that's going to be an interesting conversation um last one before we let you go I'll 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 do a little dealer's choice here we can talk about the power play and commiserate about that or we can rebuild the top six uh to to get all of these scuffling guys going well what would you rather do look at the power play or the top six I would rather look at the top six because if I have to even think (laughs) about that power play I might have a stroke Okay, good. I think everyone agrees, so we're, we're very happy there. I the, the Richie fit never made any sense. I think they're realizing that now. He's kind of finding more of a, well, at least home on, on the fourth line. Michael Bunting, he, he always, to me, made the most sense of all those left-wing guys that have kind of filtered through. I would love to see a world where it's Nylander, Matthews, and Bunting. Just the way that, that, that Nylander and, and Bunting have played, I'd like to see them with Matthews. Not that he should need anyone to get him going. You know, if it's up to you in Carolina, what does the top six look like tomorrow night? Okay, so if it's up to me, I think Michael Bunting is the closest thing to Zach Hyman. So he immediately goes next to Matthews because that's a, we know that's a stylistic fit. I would put Nylander with Matthews as well. Um, and then I would actually love to have Andre Kasha in the top six. He's clearly talented, and I, I think he's got a lot to bring. And if you're not going to put Kasha there, then you need to put Jason Spezza in the top six because he is the only guy that's producing outside of Michael Bunting. And at a minimum, neither one of those guys cheats you for effort. And so, to me, the top six, obviously you take Richie out. I'm looking at something along the lines of Bunting, Matthews, probably Marner goes there. Um, And then on the Tavares line, you basically pick between Kasha and Spezza, but I think it needs to be one of those two that's with 
Sabaric and, and Nylander. Um, I would personally move Nylander up with Matthews, but I just don't think they're going to do that. I think Marner and Tavares could uh, could maybe use a little swap of line mates, like both of them, just to see what that brings. But yeah, Tavares, uh, cautious that uh, would be my selection for that left wing side. You basically pick any of the three. I would also look after uh, penalty kills, you have I would roll a line of Spencer Matthews Nylander just kind of to get them to my son. Yeah, I, I've noticed Keith doing that, loading it up, whether it be after a penalty kill or, or late in a period, and I've, I very much like that. And, yeah, I, I'm pretty much lockstep with you uh, with what I would do uh, in that top six there. Kasha, you, you had to talk me into as it was starting, but I'm, but I'm in. I'm in. I just didn't want to break up that, that line with Camp and, and Kerfoot. I thought it looked pretty good. That's the only reason I wouldn't touch that, but I guess the top six is a little more important. That's fair, but I also think that the reason that line looked good is because of David Camp and – Andre Kasha. Like, I think Alex yep. Kerfoot has been absolutely dreadful. And so maybe you keep it together because Kerfoot's getting propped up by the play of those two, which is fine. But, I mean, to me, not having Spezza in the top six right now, if you're not going to put Kasha there, like, you, you've got to do it because he is playing so well. And this guy has the most points with the least amount of ice time. He's clearly skilled. He's wrecked the least his entire career. Now he's on the team. Use him. Use him. Is there is there a world where you look at putting Spezza up there and just kind of saying, okay, but you're getting about half the shifts because that's been the plan with him, right? Keep him at that 11, 12-ish minutes of ice time because you want him to be this guy when the playoffs roll around? Or would you just say, you know what, let's see, let's see what old school horse, you know, 17 minutes a night Jason Spezza looks like? Honestly, right now, it's so important that you get the other two going, like the $20 million duo going, that you tell Jason, hey, we're going to need you to be a horse for a couple of games to get these guys going and, and see what happens. I mean, for me, I'm pretty close to saying that Spezza should take Marner's spot on the power play as well. I think Spezza has been that good, and he's that much of a threat passing and shooting, which obviously Marner is not. And so for me, I think for at least the next couple of games, you tell Spezza, hey, we're going we're gonna to ride you here at least 15 minutes probably because we need to get these guys going. Once that goes, we can settle it down a bit. But, I mean, if you don't get these guys going, you're in danger of a pretty catastrophic start to the playoffs where people's jobs are going to be on the line. Yeah, well well said. Once again, just like Kasha, you sold me on it. Uh, Rachel, thanks so much for the time. Really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Have a great Sunday, guys. Yeah, same to you. Uh, Rachel. Rachel Dory, uh, check her out, co-host of the Staff and Graph podcast there. Show, what, do you, what, what, what say you about top six Jason Spezza in the year 2021? Oh, boy. It, it certainly feels like uh, the you know when you're looking at the wall and it says break glass in case of emergency, that's kind of what it feels like, but... Yeah, I mean, hey, look, whatever it takes at this point, it doesn't really matter anymore. You used it the line um, earlier in the show. Sheldon Keefe needs to put the lines in a blender. That's what's got to happen, man. I need, to, I need to see it all blended up. Nylander with Matthews, Marner with Tavares, Kasha up there, Spezza up there. I actually really like the Kasha, the Kasha thought. Kasha is one of the guys, going back to his days with the Ducks, that I always felt, Gunning, that 
you know, he was always tabbed, it felt like, for some kind of breakout that never really came. And I think a lot of that had to do with injury, at least in part. And he's healthy for now. And I think in spurts, he has looked like the guy who we all kind of hoped over the course of his NHL career, even before he was with the Leafs, that would be so good. So if he, if he gets to go play with the top line or the second line or something like that, if that's what it takes to get these guys going, then do it. Do whatever it is necessary. You know what? I know it's only, what, five or six games into the season. It doesn't really matter at this point. Blinds in a blender. That's where we're at now. Okay. I'm, I'm here for it. I'm here for it. You know what else I'm here for? You know I had to sneak this in. I am here for a Patriots <laughs> beatdown of the Jets. 47 Woo. to 13 right now. Zach Wilson chased out of the game. Mac Jones, I'm just, uh, show, I know I speak for you when I say this is a forewarning to the AFC East. You can enjoy <laughs> your little time right now. But once Mac Jones gets his wings, it's going to be scary, scary days again. And the Patriots will be running wild in the AFC East. Show, tons of fun today, bud. Who knows when we'll be back, but it was fun being on with you. It was fun. The show the show went by quicker than I ever thought possible while football was going on, Gunnar. So that's always a positive. <laughs> there you go. You you even sounded like you were paying attention to your job today. I didn't couldn't tell it was an NFL Sunday at all. Uh, Kyle Norris put the show together. Technical director, Andrew Dutch Holland. Thanks so much. But most importantly, thank you for listening. Again, Leafs on the road in Carolina tomorrow. We'll have the game for you here on Sportsnet 590. The fan, myself and Gord Stellick, will have you covered with the intermissions and postgame. Thanks so much for listening to Sportsnet today.